0: Being held by webex pursuant to the governor's executive order and mayoral's emergency proclamation suspending and modifying requirements for in-person meeting during the coronavirus disease emergency this committee will convene remotely until the committee is legally authorized to meet in person public comments will be available on each agenda item each speaker will be allowed two minutes to speak comments opportunity to speak during the public comment period are available by calling 415-655-0001 access code 2493-324-7846 then pound and then pound again when connected you will hear the meeting discussion but you will be muted and in listening mode only when your item of interest comes up, thou star 3 to be added to the speaker line. Best practices are to call from a quiet location, speak clearly and slowly, and turn down your television or radio. Alternatively, you may submit your public comment by email to ocoh.con at sfgov.org. And it will be forwarded to the committee and will be included as part of the official files. Please note that this meeting is being recorded and will be available at sfgovtv.org.
1: Thank you so much, Secretary Haum, and welcome everyone to day two of the Our City, Our Home Oversight Committee retreat. It is Thursday, November 17th, 2022, um, and we're gonna call this meeting to order and start with roll call, if you could, Secretary Hom.
0: Member Catalano?
2: Here.
1: Member
0: Cunningham-Denning? Absent. Vice Chair DeAntonio? Here. Member Friedenbaugh? Here. Officer Ledbetter? Here. Member Miller? absent member Reggio
3: here
1: chair Williams here all right we do have quorum and now we'll read the Ramatushalone land acknowledgement so we acknowledge that we are on the unceded ancestral homeland of the Ramatushalone who are the original inhabitants of the San Francisco peninsula as the indigenous stewards of this land and in accordance with their traditions the Ramatushalone have never ceded lost nor forgotten their responsibilities as the caretakers of this place as well as for all peoples who reside in their traditional territory. As guests, we recognize that we benefit from living and working on their traditional homeland. We wish to pay our respects by acknowledging the ancestors, elders, and relatives of the Ramatush community and by affirming their sovereign rights as First Peoples. Thank you so much. All right, so welcome everyone. Um, We are gonna kick off our day two. I know we had a really, really great uh, discussion yesterday, and I know folks are really excited to get into this portion of our retreat, um, where we're going to be talking about the strategic plan development. So I believe um, I'm going to turn it at this time is, uh, hold on one second. Um, is, is it Cynthia and Matthew, Jesse, that are here? Yes. Okay. So Cynthia Najendra and Matthew Doherty are going to be uh, walking us through where they are with the strategic plan, and then we're going to have our discussion. So, welcome, Cynthia and Matthew. And so, uh,
4: let's see can folks hear me. Yes, uh, uh, Mary. I, I don't know if Matthew is here quite yet. Um, but Matthew is
0: not here. Okay. Would you like to present, or would you? What Cynthia? Yeah. Why
4: don't I just go ahead, Cynthia? Do you want? I'm happy to go ahead and share share the deck. Yes, that'd be great. Thank Thank you. you. Yeah, one sec. So just let me know when you need to advance and I'm happy to do it. Thank you, Jesse. I'm just making sure. And we are just a tiny bit ahead of schedule, so. Okay. Yeah, I was just so. not late.
5: And <laughs> <laughs> actually, I realize that I'm actually um, here for the first part of this. So just wanted to make sure everyone was on the same page. Good morning, everybody. How's everyone doing? Um, it's nice to see all of you. Um, I am really excited to talk to you today. I know we have uh, a nice amount of time here on the, on your retreat, thank you for giving us that time. Um, let me just introduce myself, I'm Cynthia Nagender. I uh, use fewer pronouns and I am a deputy director at the Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing. I am also um, overseeing a, a, new, a newer division um, called Planning, Performance, and Strategy. Um, It's not so new anymore. So we are overseeing a citywide strategic plan on homelessness, and it's our first strategic plan um, in the sense that it's uh, a citywide plan. Um, We've had plans here and there over the years, but this is really the one uh, where we're really trying to make sure that it's as collaborative and citywide and uh, kind of inclusive of all the partners and all all the advisory bodies and experts in the community. So we're really happy to be here today. We're going to take you through it's 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 a lot of time but we don't probably ever have enough time so we'll take you through as much of this as we can today um and of course we'll come back with whatever follow-up questions or anything else that we we might you might find helpful um but we will certainly save most of today hopefully for discussion with the committee members just want to situate everybody into the context of what's um been happening with the planning process and then kind of dig into some of the content areas and really get your feedback um, with that, you can go into the next slide, please. So the strategic planning process, I think most folks know this, so I'm just gonna skip through it somewhat quickly, but if, if you have questions, please just feel free to interrupt me at any point. Um, and I really want this to be more of a discussion so I can stop, ask, answer questions, whatever is helpful. Just so folks are on the same page, we have been um, really implementing this community-wide process, as I, as I mentioned. And we are building upon the five-year strategic plan that the department has had. The department had a five-year strategic plan that really uh, coincided with the beginning of the department, kind of laying out components of the homeless response system, kind of really for the first time in San Francisco. And we have um, you know, really kind of taken some of those fundamentals, build on those, and now we're creating a plan that really is inclusive of other city agencies as well as a lot of other partners. It'll guide the work of HSA, age age, but we really want to make sure that it's a citywide plan, so that the community is aligned on its vision, on its investments, um, and that we're really kind of clear about where we're headed and how how we're going to get there. Um, so it's really a roadmap for us as a community. So the planning process um, we are uh, hoping to wrap up, but we will wrap it up at the end of early 2020 early 2023. I'll talk a bit more about the timeline in just a second. Next slide, please. So the first phase of our planning really focused on homelessness um, uh, as a system for the state plan. We had a state plan for the first time that we had to submit with what's called HAP funding, Homelessness Housing Assistance and Prevention Program funding, and that required us to do a Homelessness Action Plan, um, and we had to set a number of goals really defined by the state that are pretty much aligned with the system performance measures that you all have been looking at that we report to the federal government, slightly differently calculated, but similar uh, in, in, in name and, and spirit, <laughs> but a little slightly different in calculation. So the coordinate entry evaluation is also something that we've done earlier this year um, that went, uh, it was a, a third party, pretty uh, comprehensive evaluation of the coordinate entry system. And we are now currently in a whole redesign process um, for the entire uh, coordinate entry system. There's a work group that has been seated through the local homes coordinating board, coordinate entry committee. Um, it's, a, it's a pretty great redesign. I know I haven't talked about that here very much, but if you would like any updates about that, we report that out at, at the LHCB, and of course I'm happy to talk about it. Um, but that work group is uh, currently working on making a number of recommendations that will come out in early 2023 about um, the redesign for coordinate entry. We also are working on the MacArthur Foundation, um, You all, a, a grant that we received from the MacArthur Foundation called the Just Home Initiative. You all sent a letter of support, which was really helpful, in us Getting criminal justice uh, both resources to plan, do strategic planning with the criminal justice system, um, and a housing project to focus on reducing racial disparities um, in people experiencing homelessness that are also justice involved. So that's all been going on. We're still working on all that planning. The second phase has been really about the citywide strategic plan and putting all those pieces in place. Next slide, please. Really quickly, the timeline. The most important part here, since we're already in November, is that we're in the middle of these implementation processes. There's a pretty robust uh community engagement process that's kind of one of the key parts which i'll talk about in a minute um and the december 22 to january 2023 here on that third bullet is really when we're really trying to kind of wrap up input get it all into the drafting of the plan and by february really kind of have something that's a draft that will be reviewed um and and published hopefully by the end of that month so somewhere early 2023 was kind of our general timeline um, and all of this is going to be reliant on the needs assessment. All of the work that you have all done on the needs assessment, all the different parts, everything you've learned. I mean, even going back to the listening sessions from a year and a half ago, all of that has been really informative. Um, and we know that the the work that you're doing in the needs assessment really does complement and inform, um, and goes really well hand in hand with our strategic planning process to really inform us what are the really, what are the needs. You know, we have a lot of uh, different. Parts of this process that we're asking about but the needs assessment is going to bring us a lot of information or has already brought us a lot of information actually next slide so the key plan uh sorry key elements of the planning process as i said we have a pretty active engagement and stakeholder input process which i have mentioned before and i'll say a little bit about but i'm not going to spend a lot of time on that today we have um a great community engagement partner, we really wanted to make sure that we were working with somebody who was representative of the voices, um, and the, and the demographics of the people experiencing homelessness in San Francisco, and really importantly, working with people who have lived expertise or from impacted populations. And so we have a community engagement partner, um, named Talent Pool, and they are, uh, Working with community liaisons, we're resourcing people with expertise essentially to do focus groups, stakeholder interviews, surveys, and collect information both from providers, people experiencing homelessness, um, as well as people who are, uh, you know, just sort of working within the homeless response system or people who haven't actually touched it before but need the services. The data driven systems modeling, we've mentioned that we, we, we did a whole um, a small session here with the committee. That is really kind of telling us how we can set our goals. So it's modeling out where inventory today will get us over time, inclusive of a lot of different kind of inputs. Um, And we're sort of using that to have as as realistic a forecasting as we can get. Um, It's not an exact 100% future, Uh, it's not a crystal ball, um, but it is something that can really guide us in a much more um, detailed way, realistic way. The cross departmental coordination and planning as i said really important we are working with a number of agencies one-on-one and just saying to kind of starting with leadership conversations and saying you know what are our priorities as two departments as a community what are the kind of priority areas we want to drive towards and what are the kind of shared metrics that we can that we can really kind of align ourselves around to make sure that we're on the same page and we understand what our role is in addressing um and responding to prevention of homelessness and um and getting folks off the street and into housing in more permanent places and stability. Next slide, please. So I'm going to spend a little bit of time just talking about the framework that we're going to use today for guiding our discussions and our thinking and asking you all questions. I am I'm going to just introduce this and I and actually Matthew's here so I can also just um, transition to him in a little bit, but I wanted to just sort of explain what the planning framework is and why we are using it and and kind of how we're gonna be engaging all of you today. Next slide. So the planning framework components. So these planning framework components are really meant to help us have areas for discussion. The discussion we will have today, um, there's a lot that we can talk about in each of these areas. So we're gonna sort of try to guide us through as many of them as we can. But I wanted to just explain that these six areas came from input that we had already gotten from, somewhat from the the work that we had done last year in listening sessions and in uh, needs assessment, all of the things um, related to homelessness that we've already been kind of working on and cataloging in that first half of there for the state plan, all of that has kind of uh, helped us come up with these six areas that we think are are fairly comprehensive, not not exhaustive, certainly. And we want to know kind of from all of you, like, what is missing? But essentially as a way to talk about what we want to put in our plan rather than just kind of blanketly ask you know what should we be doing on homelessness this doesn't necessarily have to be exactly how the plan is organized we just wanted to make sure that we had a way to talk about um these areas in kind of a more focused way but still have people be able to be kind of creative and give input and tell us what's missing so organizing things this way is how we're going to talk about um the content today and want your input on a number a number of these areas I just wanted to say from the beginning that the central focus of the strategic plan is on justice and equity, and it's incorporated throughout all of the planning components. It's really driving you know, it's driving most of our work and on all of our work. Um, I didn't put the coordinator redesign is not in this, but it really is driving that process. And in the same way, it's driving each of these areas. It's really the lens that we're lo- using to kind of um, put together Goals, strategies, and activities uh, in each of these buckets, and we have advancing towards racial and housing justice here in the first bucket, not because that's where everything will go, but rather we thought it was important to call it out, you know, and just have the the actual kind of um, language there. But I wanted to point out that this is really something that is woven throughout the plan, or will be, um, and we're sort of making sure that that's kind of the question we're asking in each of these areas. Um, I'm just gonna. I can talk through these really quickly um and we will spend some time in each of them asking you some questions and i just wanted to say it looks like matthew is here is that correct okay and before i turn it over to matthew i wanted to just check if there are any questions before i keep going i have a question hey. good morning
6: Hi. um Hi. Building up and if this is going to come up later, we can we can uh, move it along. But given our conversation yesterday about the gains that we've been making toward racial equity, particularly around black populations. Um, can you talk a little bit about who the partners are citywide that uh, that you guys are working with? I know it's a huge task to start with DPH and HSH, but wondering if you're engaging some of the groups that we were curious about yesterday
5: sure yeah i can certainly list the or uh, the city partners that we've been had meetings with some of them have been we've been meeting with them for months and some of them we're having sort of more um initial meetings and we will continue to work together uh so it depends on the agency so department of public health is the uh the city partner that we've had meeting with for months um we already have a lot of work with with the department of public health obviously um they're partners to us in, in so much of the work Currently, we also have had a lot of meetings around Calium implementation, which is also happening at the same time. So Calium implementation is the implementation of the Medicaid Medicaid waiver um, for folks who aren't familiar with that terminology. but essentially it involves working with the, our health partners, which is both the, um, the San Francisco Health plan and other um, managed care organizations, as well as the Department of Public Health. So we're kind of really coordinating uh, tightly on that as well. But we have met with um, their, the leadership um, and, and behavioral health and other parts of the Department of Public Health, which is huge, to really make sure that we are coming up with kind of our shared priorities um, in terms of populations and with, in terms of sort of really trying to align around metrics. And so the kind of key part of those discussions has to do with we have so much work going on. What do we really want to make an impact on? Where are our resources going? What are our ultimate goals? And what are, you know, what are, our, what are our roles in that? Similarly, we've been having that sort of approach and discussion with the Mayor's Office of Housing and Community Development, um, the uh, Department of um, sort of going through all my agencies, Mayor's Office of Housing and Community Development, we're going to have a meeting with OEWD, uh, the Department of Emergency Management, um, obviously the Mayor's Office, the folks at um, the San Francisco Unified School District, we had a meeting with them as well. Um, we are having, I'm trying to see if I'm forgetting anything. I know that there's a few more there. Most of the agencies that are touching homelessness, oh we're going to be meeting with the San Francisco Housing Authority, Um, really anyone that we think is sort of touching homelessness or we need. Um, And of course, I mentioned the criminal justice system. So all of the criminal justice partners are already kind of at a table um, on the safety and justice challenge. We're meeting with them very regularly now, especially because we have some resources to do that. Um, And so we're trying to make sure that we're being as inclusive. There's been so much interest in this also, so we're really happy about that and excited to kind of engage around those Um, around all of this, this work and kind of be more strategic as a community. Great. Thank you. I think maybe you
6: dropped off before we had the conversation, but I think this committee was also and has been interested in the work going on in the Southeast and the reparations and Office of Racial Equity and, you know, in other communities, those have been really meaningful, transformative partnerships in this type of work. So just want to put it on the radar there.
5: Yeah, thank you. The Office of Racial Equity, I should mention, we uh, actually have, so the, we have a plan called the, um, uh, the Racial Equity Action Plan, which is in coordination with the Office of Racial Equity. This is something that actually happened in 2020, and we've been uh, sort of uh, d- over- implementing it, really, implementing it, revising it, and so that, that work is happening there. Um, it's not meant to be separate. It's, you know, it will be woven within this plan, but I just wanted to mention that. And, that, and the Office of the Department of, uh, the Status of Women. Um, we also have met with them, and there's, there's been a needs assessment that we have recently finished that's um, for survivors, and so we're working with them on that as well. And I think, yeah, and if there's any sort of other pieces of this work that you wanted to mention, I'm happy to hear about them or talk about them. Thank you. So we have, I know, not a lot of time. Um, I want to make sure you all have time to, to talk about these pieces, so I'm going to hand it over to Matthew um and I know Matthew can, can introduce himself as well again and I know most of you probably know him um thank you so much
7: thanks Cynthia and glad to be with the committee again uh, it feels like I'm here every month now so I'm looking forward to the conversation and do want this session to be different and more you talking at us rather than us presenting to you so that's what the, the focus of the balance of our time is going to be on gathering input from you can you go to the next slide please so I just want to be clear that, as Cynthia described, we're using that framework which we previewed to you last month to structure the conversations, gather ideas, make sure we don't do short shrift to any parts of the planning and thinking that we need to, to focus on through this process. And out of that, we'll determine what the action areas within the strategic plan will be. They might be similar to the planning areas. They might meld some of them together. They might... Uh, morph into different things based upon conversations with the idea that below the action areas there's then objectives which are statements of the intentions what is the city trying to make a difference around uh, trying to accomplish really focused on driving progress and and then below those strategies and activities that would drive progress to those objectives so today we really want to hear from you around both the at the objective level what do you think the city should be prioritizing its focus on, what should it be intending to make a difference around, as well as ideas for specific strategies, activities, things that you'd like to see the city departments include within the plan. Next slide, please. So we previewed these discussion questions to you last week as well, You could, obviously this is your chance to respond to and give the feedback that you want to provide, but we wanted to you some questions to think about and we'll use these as we go through each of the parts of the planning framework Um, but again you can provide feedback that's not exactly responsive to these questions we just want to make sure we hear from you about the most important things that you want to express The one thing i will flag is that we really do want this to be an input session so if you're if you ask a question like what is the city thinking about related to x y or z I'm likely to take my facilitator's prerogative and turn it back to you and like, what do you think the city should be thinking about? Or what's most important? Um, Or is the city thinking about doing such and such? Really want you to think about this as your chance to express things as ideas and recommendations and what you want the city to be doing. So you may feel me push back a little bit to just reframe it from a question to what, what you have in your own mind about what you think the city should be doing. And I hope that doesn't Get annoying but we'll see how it goes. Um, so, so again we're going to move pretty quickly through um, but we're going to try to cover all parts of the planning framework and talk through these both objective level questions as well as activity level questions always with an uh, emphasis on things around racial and housing justice and a chance for you also to weigh in around what needs to be different when we think about specific populations or communities. Okay, so if folks are ready, we're going to dive in. Um, so the next slide, please. So we're going to start with the, act- the planning area around advancing toward racial and housing justice. Again, as Cynthia flagged, um, this focus is throughout all of the planning areas, but we wanted to make sure we were explicit enough and taking enough time to really focus exclusively on issues related to racial and housing justice in these conversations and in the plan. So just to give you a flavor of the kinds of things that could be strategies and activities in this area, there are things identified within the racial equity action plan that Cynthia just described. Could be more work around partnership and capacity building with BIPOC-led organizations. Could be about partnerships with people with lived experience and expertise. Could be around still continuing to focus on data analysis and really understanding inequity and equity issues. Um, Could be the work related to coordinated entry redesign and its focus on addressing equity concerns. This list is not meant to limit you in any way, but more just to give you a sense of the kinds of things that folks have already been talking about and thinking about. Next slide, please. So here we want to focus on what do you think The most important objectives for efforts in this area should be where should the city apply its greatest effort and emphasis in making a difference in progress towards racial and housing justice. Are there specific strategies and activities that you think the city should be focused on that would help drive progress toward equity and justice? You can frame it as things you think the city should start doing or do more of or stop doing or do less of. Um, and also very very much appreciate any thoughts you have around things that need to be tailored for different communities or populations. I think the way the pace works for we have about well, about 10 minutes per planning area if I'm remembering my calendar well so um, I may transition you to a future topic but you can always reflect on any of the prior ones we've we've addressed so anybody want to jump in here around ideas about objectives and intentions that we should be striving towards or specific activities or strategies you'd like to see the city be focused
4: on. And can everybody see each other just as a question before we get started? Does it, does it make sense to stop sharing or is it helpful to continue to see the questions? I like seeing the questions. Okay, great, thanks. for the questions too.
8: Yeah, I have, I have a couple of things things. Oh, Chair Williams, if I may. Um, so, I think that um, in terms of the important objectives, um, the things that really stood out to me was the capacity building, and you know, um, just to be frank, our you know, I feel like our best organizations um, that are serving homeless people are BIPOC led, um, and um, often kind of like they, they aren't able to ramp up in competition with because of the capacity stuff with with the more kind of white led organizations um and um from homeless people's perspective you know that want to get services from organizations they trust etc they have good reputations and then that that kind of disadvantages so I think this is one area where the city has been pretty weak um there's been some accountability stuff with organizations in terms of like it's almost like a punitive approach rather than a, a, a capacity-building approach. And um, so I think that that script needs to be flipped. And, you know, um, uh, sometimes it has to do with, um, you know, you might have a really strong support services role, but less, less strong admin kind of backroom, um, you know, um, in an organization that's like, you know because their emphasis is as it should be on serving homeless people and then you know there's not like anyway so i think there 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 could be a lot of work there that stood out a lot for me the other thing that stood out for me and this is kind of also with the number two question is on the coordinated entry and i think that from the racial equity perspective it needs to be broader than coordinated entry Um, Not all areas of our system are accessed through coordinated entry, nor should they be. Um, Frankly, I think coordinated entry is like the hardest system for anybody to get through in order to get help. Um, And so, um, but we still have, um, we still have some problematic um, practices and um, that um, really drive racial inequities in particular around the shelter system. And so currently, basically, access to shelter is complaint driven, um, which means that more gentrifying uh, neighborhoods or kind of more (coughs) neighborhoods of people who look like me, who tend to be the types to call the city to complain about people as opposed to, say, you know, a more black or diverse neighborhood like the Bayview where they're not they're not complaining as much. Um, That means that that elderly African-American in the Bayview that's sleeping rough on the street is not going to get access to shelter because we have this insane system right now where nobody can access shelter unless you happen to be at the right spot at a time um, during a sweep and it, ju- it just completely drives racial inequities and then the people who are trying to get shelter um who by the way traditionally you know I mean pre-pandemic when people could access shelter um the shelters were very african-american dominated um, and uh a lot of elderly people um a lot of um, elderly women, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, and those are the folks that are completely iced out at this point. And if you looked at our pre-pandemic system, we had the shelter, traditional shelter system, which was easily accessible, and then you had the invitation-only system, which was the navigation centers. Navigation centers tended to serve white, so it's leaned towards white, people white homeless people. So, you know, it, it's it's we've got to have a shelter system, and that should be included in this goal that's easily accessible for all folks who need shelter someone's going to see their health provider and they're really really sick and there's no way for their health provider to help them get shelter that's ridiculous and so and that is our current system today and it's really frustrating and so we're basically saying oh the only people who get shelter are the ones that 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 like karen's and complain about like i i just i don't i don't understand why we're doing this so I think this is a super important situation. And then it, and that kind of applies to the other areas of the system that you, that you access through outside of coordinated entry. Um, that could be behavioral health services, that could be, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so um, prevention services that um, this, this racial equity lens needs to be on all our access systems. And we should have really fundamental principles that we apply that is equitable, easy access for unhoused people, by the way, may not have a phone or they have a phone and they can't charge it and so having systems that relies on a phone call is ridiculous which is you know uh, what we're talking about so I think you know these are uh, this is kind of a kind of a thing that I'd really like to see um, happen in the in the strategic plan it's a really rethinking of that Um, I'd also like us to take a look at our outreach expenditures um, on the behavioral health side all the way through to the hsh side not just limited to the hsh side because um, you know we do we we are we our, our outreach budget has been expanding exponentially it's not it is an important piece um you know uh in terms of you know making sure that people who are um, more uh have a higher acuities so are able to Get assistance navigating through the system and getting the help they need, um, but is it out of proportion? Because if the outreach you don't have any services available for people, um, they can't really do much. Um, and so, and I just I'll, I'll bring an example of um, of HSOC which is one of the operations the city's doing, and I. You know um, so if,
7: you, if you don't mind we, we will we actually we'll talk on homelessness and outreach under one of the other areas
8: all right i'll hold it but i think that's that is that piece is really from from our perspective and from my perspective really closely aligned to the equity racial equity stuff and so is very very um because of that thing that i was talking about earlier about who gets shelter um there's and where the outreach resources are and all that um and everything being complaint-driven it's very like very much a huge racial equity issue in the system thank you great appreciate
7: it i'm seeing a bunch of hands in the participants list so i'm gonna i see julia nina ken and chanel so i'll start with julia
9: great thank you um yeah i'm really excited about this um and great presentation so far so yeah the first thing i wrote down to was coordinated entry redesign um on other than the things I already mentioned, I would say like more low barrier, like more autonomy as far as like, it shouldn't be that difficult to access services. Like if you're saying I'm experiencing homelessness or I need assistance, like if there's maybe like 0.01% of those folks are bad actors, like you're kind of ruining it for everybody. So I think just like making it easier, like expanding versus like making it so exclusive and like difficult. Um, and then I think part of coordinated entry, the idea was, like, people wouldn't have to be <clears throat> repeating, like, their triggers and, like, traumas, like, over and over. But I'm hearing that's still happening. So it's, like, just give people housing if they need housing. Um, also, I'd like to see us talk more about, um, like, DV capacity in our system. Like, I don't think we talk about that enough. Um I also feel like a lot of the time we hear things that don't abide by like the housing first model so like looking at um all of our like exits to permanent housing and and even shelter and seeing like are we really adhering to like a housing first model because if we're forcing people to like be clean and sober stuff like that um that's really not a housing first model um I'd say, like, better catches for, like, prevention-wise for people who are being pushed out of, like, HUD housing, especially with, like, RAD redevelopment. Um, I think a lot of people end up falling through the cracks. It can be, like, really intimidating when you start getting harassed by HUD. Um, And then I would say other types of affordable housing as well, like people in permanent supportive housing. I just feel like a lot of people slip through the cracks sometimes. Um, And then also, um, overall, we just need more low-income housing like for just affordable housing like um people who are making minimum wage like can't afford to live in the city um single moms like sometimes people don't need a lot of services or support they really just need affordable housing um so yeah that's mine thank you
7: great and we're good and we will we'll talk about each of the parts of the frameworks so and we'll, t- we'll talk next about kind of some of the other system strengthening things we'll then talk about unsheltered homelessness and crisis response services and shelter and interim housing permanent housing and prevention so I just want to make sure that we we try to spend the time we have now to really zero in on the issues of racial and housing justice and then we will talk about some of the other systemic improvements or access improvements that might not be as squarely focused but I just want to make sure we don't so I passed our focus on uh, racial inequities and housing justice. Um, so I'm going to go to Nina next. And I'm sorry, if it's Nina or Nina, I don't remember. Yes, Nina, thank you, Matthew.
2: <laughs> thank you so much. Um, so most important objectives, and my mind is... Um... Hey, Nina, you
9: sound really far away. Can, oh. Is there a way to get close, like, turn up the volume? Yeah,
2: physically close and uh, louder. Thank you, Julia. Yeah. <laughs> sorry. Thank you. I just want to hear you. One. Thank you so much. So for most important objectives for me is reducing disproportionality by race and ethnicity, like number one, and then also reducing total numbers of people um, experiencing homelessness. And I think we talked yesterday about needing to focus on inflow, outflow, and returns. So making sure that we're hitting those and seeing those numbers, that we are disproportionately serving communities of color um, in all of those areas and that we're actually tracking numbers going down. Um, I'd also be interested in sort of a quality of care measure um, so folks you know, are able to, you know, I don't just want to push people into PSH, right? <laughs> there needs to be some um, sense that the, the offer of help that folks are getting is what they need, and so I'd be interested in a quality of care measure. Um, and then related, I think, and Julia was speaking to this, and we heard about this in the needs assessment yesterday was choice. Um, And I think this goes to the capacity building work that Jennifer was recommending too, right? Making sure that um, folks who are trying to access services are able to get services that are culturally competent and that resonate with them. Um, And so being able to provide choice to be able to ensure that they're have not just a housing placement, but that is, you know, a sticky housing placement and one that feels like supportive.
7: Great. Perfect. Thank you very much. Okay. I'm just checking my my list again. So I see Chanel and Julie, I'll go to, I think Julie may have just taken her hand down. So I'll go to Chanel
1: next. Thank you. And I really agree with a lot of the comments already, but I have my my list as well. Um, So definitely the cultural responsiveness piece. um, that Jenny highlighted, just investing in Black nonprofit leadership. Um, I think there's definitely been a longstanding disparity in investment in Black organizations, particularly in the Bayview Hunters Point. I mean, we heard that really loud and clear in our listening sessions, and just really giving folks the tools that they need to be able to serve um, their 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 folks, their people in a, in a good way. And so definitely want to uplift that. Um, public housing, um, haven't Really would love to get a report on what's happening with our public housing sites in terms of upgrades, the vacant units. When I think of extremely low-income families, I think of Housing Authority, I think of public housing, and I know that we have not yet at this committee heard um, from those folks. So really want to see what's happening there because I think that there's a lot of opportunity for extremely low-income families when it comes to Housing Authority and public our public housing sites. And I know that with RAD, um, some folks have definitely reported that you know. Through the reconstruction process, they get pushed out um, because of credit, because of other things, and then folks, you know, have to leave the city and they're not able to get access. So, um, definitely, just want to hear what's happening in the public housing and housing authority realm, all of it. Um, definitely legal, uh, legal, and advocacy support because I feel like there's huge issues with landlord discrimination um, with Black and Brown folks um, in the private market. There has to be a way to enforce. Um, discrimination in the private market. Um, we've heard from the Human Rights Commission um, not only just single adults, but like even pregnant um, Black and Brown, you know, moms are are getting discriminated on, and just in that time-sensitive space. And so, how do we enforce, um, you know, landlords? You know, how do we stop landlords in the private market from discriminating on on folks of color when they're accessing housing? I've even heard of just young uh, families of color um, not being able to get through, even though they have all the things they need. Credit's okay. You know, income's okay. Um, They just, because of that bias, they're not um, getting access to um, the private market. And so, and then on top of that, I think the reparations piece, like how do we look at this economic prosperity um, issue, not just in terms of economic workforce, but like real reparations, like cash payments for folks to really get ahead and to kind of build their economic prosperity, because we know it's intergenerational. We know that San Francisco has a history with redevelopment. With redlining, with all of it, and and also just in the job market again, private market for jobs, um, you know, typically you know black workers get pushed into certain um, jobs that aren't in the living wage um, realm. So how do we just pay people cash <laughs> to be able to get ahead, um, to be able to get access to the private market, and then being able to sustain that? And I really agree with um, Nina's comment on the quality of care measure. I mean we could have all the programs and services in the world, but if they are not meeting the need or folks are not culturally responsive, responsive or competent, and people just don't want to use that program because of their experience of service there, then what's the point? So that's my my list for now. Great. Great. Thank you all.
7: I am gonna move us to the next planning area. But just remember that we're trying to keep this focus on racial and housing justice throughout so you don't have to let go of any ideas that you had squarely focused on racial and housing justice but maybe we'll, we'll try to put them in the context of these specific areas so the second planning areas around improve more at kind of the systems level how is the system working what is its capacity um what's its accountability so um, kinds of strategy activities could include things like capacity building efforts, which a lot of you have referenced already, and some of the work that's being done to think through nonprofit sustainability and infrastructure and workforce capacity. There's elements of the coordinated entry redesign that aren't just about equitable access, but also trying to make other improvements within those processes. Uh, the one system and strengthening the data and and being able to implement more performance measurement activities could fit within this kind of an area the system modeling we've talked about and using that kind of data driven um, process to help make decisions in the future and then also things that might have to do with the governance and the oversight and accountability within the system so again just to give you a sense of the flavor of things that might fall into this category and then the same questions here next slide please And when you think at the systemic level and how the system as a whole is working and not necessarily the specific interventions, what do you think some of the most important objectives are? What kinds of strategies, activities would help drive progress, including progress towards racial and housing justice? You should be doing less of, more of, those kinds of questions. So um, I think several of you have already touched upon these kinds of issues, but if there's other things that you'd squarely like to see focused on around performance, around capacity, and accountability. I see a bunch of hands went up, so, and I apologize, I hope it's okay, I'm just using people's first names rather than committee member and committee chair, and I, I probably should be more formal than I am, but I, um, I'm, hoping, I'm hoping it's okay. So I see a bunch of names, I'm just gonna look for, I don't think we've heard from Ken yet, so I'm gonna go to Ken first. And then Julie, and then I'll come back to folks who've already jumped in. So Ken, your turn.
3: Thank you. Uh, I think on the the emphasis on this to me would be particularly on the capacity of uh, the provider organizations. We talked about the uh, black and brown-led organizations. I think uh, paying attention to the capacity and the cultural competence of the organizations that traditionally have provided uh, major service and we assumably we will continue to in San Francisco is. Also very important, I think encouraging partnerships between the uh, uh, BIPOC-led organizations and uh, for lack of a better term, uh, the traditional organizations is an opportunity for mutual learning. one that in the past has worked very well and i think with good outcome And I, I guess i would say respectfully i think those organizations also do great work and will do increasingly better work as uh, the cultural competence uh, continues to increase uh, i think the other part in the capacity issue is one that we've talked about a lot in the lab i was going to say last several years for decades and our programs sufficiently funded so that they can attract staff, they can sustain staff, uh, and they can deliver what they're expected to deliver. And I think there is uh, traditional underfunding. I think we made good strides this year toward improving that. And as we look at uh, uh, budget challenges in the city over the course of the next couple of years, somehow those strides have to continue or we will have programs that, maybe you designed well, but have a uh, rotation of staffing that just makes them not effective. So I think we have to continue to look strongly at funding issues, uh, which does address the capacity of organizations to deliver their work.
7: Great, thank you very much. I wanna go to
6: Julie next. Thank you. I'm thinking a little bit about system performance and accountability and top of mind for me is the article that came out yesterday that you know it was a surprisingly positive article about increased housing placements and rapid rehousing and and just wanting to and we've talked about this as a committee and I just and as a city and I don't think we've gotten there yet which is like how do we consistently promote positive progress and I think we all have this mutual need to do this, right? The, to support the work of the departments who are working very hard to educate voters, to put a positive, you know, uh, frame around the RCDR home dollars, which is, are easily under attack. Um, and you know, it's outside of the traditional homelessness system response, but I think this is a political response and will just only support any progress that we make in developing our system as a whole. And you know, I think it's a slightly separate conversation, but we just, we need a voice in the community that's unified, strong, and pointed toward progress and is populist, you know, isn't necessarily about the technical aspects of the system. And I think that's within our purview. Um, I don't think we're quite figured out how to do it yet. but. I, I, that that's just top of mind because so I'd really like the amazing work that's getting done to be really promoted and supported in a way that that regular people understand, even in the face of really challenging conditions out there on the streets. Like everybody understands that. Um, I think yesterday's article was good. Now back to the system performance piece. It was on rapid rehousing. So I think as we as we are bringing these new resources in. You know, I'm very concerned with what's going to happen with all those folks that went into rapid rehousing, and I know. I, I think people are starting to think about what you know what might happen at that cliff for folks. Um, but in terms of you know, looking toward returns to homelessness, I think that would be an area to to look at. Okay. Thanks. Okay. Right. Okay. So let's see
7: three more hands up I'm going to go to Jennifer then to Julie then to Nina if anyone else does want to weigh in on this part of this topic then this would be a great time to raise your hand um, otherwise we'll move on after these next three folks but I'm going to go to Jennifer first
8: yeah just a couple comments I won't die drive this long this time promise <laughs> <laughs> um, so the um, the performance measurement piece um, there should be some systemic way that it, the uh um, the measurement is coming directly from unhoused folks or users of whatever the service is um there is like a kind of a blank like a little survey you know that the provide it, it's not it's not in depth enough in terms of really having um getting input from folks on how they feel about you know it's most of the focus is for the contract monitoring is on money whether the money spent right and a great deal of resources put into that which is really important you don't want any You know graph or any of that stuff happening so um, but there's I always felt like there was this missing element and then the other one of the things that's most important I feel like is the system modeling and really trying to figure out where um, you know where we should be investing and I think for this committee in particular if there's money that needs to be shifted around Um, I'm also really concerned about the uh, rapid rehousing and the numbers there um and what happens um, we just keep meeting folks who um have fallen um, out of that and um, that are unhoused now and um, so uh that's really um difficult um so those were those were my two comments
7: okay great very helpful thank you um,
9: to... oh, yeah. cool yep um so one thing is like At the access points for coordinated entry. Before coordinated entry, they used to be like just really welcoming spaces. They had a lot of services, at least on the family side. Um, And then when coordinated entry came in, they kind of got rid of all that. And just doesn't sound like as welcoming of an experience. Like I I sent someone to the Bayview coordinated entry access point the other day and they told me that um, like they basically had a conversation with somebody like standing outside, like they didn't open the gate, like they didn't even go in. So to me, like, it just, it's just so cold, like coordinated entry just kind of cut off like all like human like empathy, like connection. So like, how do we get back to a place that just feels like more community and like people actually want to like help each other? Um, So I'm thinking kind of like Compass Family Services, how they used to have, you know, like diaper banks and like food and computer labs and stuff like that and we just got rid of all of that and nothing ever got replaced and that was such a tool for like families and community and there was just like kids and families i don't know anyways i'll stop there but that's kind of what i'm thinking around there and then yeah i just i want to echo what everybody's saying around capacity building i think especially frontline staff and we're talking about staff who are basically living paycheck to paycheck like one like bad luck away from ending up uh experiencing homelessness themselves and mostly are all black and brown folks as well and a lot of them aren't stably housed so you know i think we have a lot of work to do there i think especially <clears throat> one area and like where i think it's been hard um to staff is like more like behavioral health and like therapists and stuff like that <clears throat> and i i have talked to some of them and yeah it's just not competitive wages, honestly, at the end of the day, and it's really hard to self-care. So I think frontline staff and then like therapists and that type of work, um, we could really focus on like increasing their their salaries. Um, I think also like more restorative justice practices just in the overall system and like in shelters. I know that we had kind of started doing that with um, Next Door and some other shelters, and I think it, it worked really well. <clears throat> even like between staff themselves. And as like, I think not just clients and staff, but like staff holding circles. Um, it, it's it's not easy work. So I think like just acknowledging that. Okay. Um, and that would, at the end of the day, provide better care and like, just a better overall environment for the clients as well. Um, and then lastly, I guess this is more of like a metric that I would like us to figure out is like, how many families are doubled up right now in San Francisco and just like not letting SRO families and doubled up families fall off the map um, as far as like being able to either access coordinated entry or are they accessing outside of coordinated entry like um, Jenny was talking about but just making sure that they're you know we're constantly remembering that San Francisco definition is that they are um, homeless so yeah that's it thank you Great, very much appreciated. Thank you. And
2: So I think something that we should start doing more of as a city, and this is particularly important as we're coming out of COVID, um, is for all of us, but especially the departments and nonprofit providers to like spend time intentionally building collaborative relationships um, and that are focused on like real-time problem solving. Um, and also that kind of forward thinking and just making space and time for that because a lot of what I hear is um, feedback provided, crises alerted um, from every direction to every direction, but uh, difficulty in in taking action that resolves um, the crisis or prevents the crisis in the first place. And so part of that is um, taking the time to build those relationships and and nourish those relationships so that they can be as productive as possible. And then part of that is like tactical contracting, procurement reform, so that when there is a a workforce issue that could be mitigated by a little bit of, you know, flexible funding or pivoting funding or changing an outcome in a a contract um, that could be more supportive of actually getting the job done, that that's able to do. I know government's never going to be the most flexible funder, but I think putting, like making investments now into those processes so they work better two, five, 10 years from now is like really, really important and unsexy work um, that could actually bear a lot of fruit in terms of the ability to respond to this changing need that we have as a community that is totally human-based. So that's my priority area. Great, great, appreciate everyone's
7: feedback on that. I'm gonna. What I'm gonna do is I'm gonna combine three and four, so I'll present both of those quickly because they are so closely connected, and then you can be weighing in on either piece. But that might that might make sure we we uh, get through all of them. So the so three focuses on unsheltered homelessness, and four focuses on crisis services and emergency shelter and housing. So obviously very closely connected. We did want to treat them a little separately because in in my experience, oftentimes when we plan on how to strengthen our efforts around homelessness many communities skip over people's experience of unsheltered homelessness altogether, and we just don't bring adequate focus. So we want to make sure we were focusing on what people need while they are still unsheltered, as well as the solutions that we need to, to end the, their unsheltered homelessness. So some of the kinds of strategies or activities that could fall in planning area three are making sure we're reaching the most impacted populations, that we're strengthening outreach and engagement. And Jennifer, you may have some follow-up to your earlier comments around that. That we're thinking about street-based medicine and health strategies and we're creating pathways to interim and permanent housing options and we're thinking about how do we respond to the street conditions and community concerns that are that are created by the presence of people staying in encampments if you can go two slides forward if you would so then action uh, planning area four focuses on enhancing crisis services and shelter options interim housing Kind of the full range of ways that you you provide opportunities for people to come inside. Um, things here could include making sure we have equitable access and outcomes within crisis services and temporary housing programs. Again, Jennifer, I think you were highlighting that very early on that there's there may be some things that are inequitable about how people access these kinds of services that we're expanding or enhancing these kinds of programs that we're improving access to a variety of crisis services. I think things could fit in here also around strengthening the services that are grounded within these programs that might produce better outcomes. Next slide, please. So if you can sort of keep both of those things in mind, kind of the the issue of responding to unsheltered homelessness and trying to think about people's needs while they are still unsheltered, as well as the crisis services or shelter options And as you think about that holistically, what are some of the most important objectives, strategies, activities, the same kinds of questions. And here, especially if you think there is any tailoring of the strategies for different communities or different subpopulations that you think we need to be especially attentive to. Does that make sense the way we've combined those and that you can be talking about either one of the planning areas or how they interact? Anyone wanna jump in here?
9: I can go really quick. I just, I only have one thing on this one. I would say um, just like more regular engagement with folks who are accessing whatever, if it's shelter or whatever service it is. And, And also that would mean having different touch points. So like not just showing up and holding a focus group, like maybe having some ways that people can engage like I don't know, online, send an email or like there's some way that people can provide feedback on services that they're receiving um, whenever they something comes up. Um, I don't think that there should be like such a big disconnect between people accessing services and like the city that provides it. Like there needs to be a better bridge between, <clears throat> between the two. And yeah, just more regular engagement with folks um, because that's really like how we're going to improve the system. Yeah. Okay.
7: Great. And I see a few hands now. I'm going to go to Jennifer first, especially because I kind of redirected you to this part of the discussion earlier, and then I'll go to go to Ken and then to Julie. So Jennifer, I think you might be on mute.
8: So um, first, I don't think we should ever put the word housing next to something that's temporary. We should keep calling it. I know people have this thing where they keep saying interim housing and stuff. A lot of people in the community are really bothered by that. If you don't have tenant rights, please don't call it housing. Um, So um, that really should be a differentiation. And um, I really don't want us to slide back into the 1980s um, on our homeless response. And so that's what it feels like we're doing. Um, So I think we've learned a little since then, hopefully. Um, So, you know, one of the things that... um, and the reason that this is really, really important to, um, in our conversations within the house communities, stability is incredibly important. And so, which kind of leads me to my other point is, is that making sure there's ways to access housing directly off the streets, um, not necessarily through, because for a lot of folks, they've already been through all these systems and spit back out. They're really like not, not wanting to keep having the rug ripped out from underneath them again. Like it's just, it's, it's too much. You know, and so um, they, you know, they really, really prioritize stability, And that's, that's, that's a big draw there. And we need to have that access that's outside of a hostile approach. And so, you know, I've been monitoring the sweeps, as I mentioned, and there'll be, you know, a bunch of times um, over, you know, the last few weeks, there was literally one unhoused person and um, 18 city personnel, MTA, DPW, SFPD, usually like four, like eight city vehicles. Um, I mean, it's (laughs) insane. And so that really creates a very threatening environment for unhoused people. It's not trauma informed. Um, It does not develop trust. It's really, and and all of that. And so we need to really, you know, make sure that, um, and again, we don't, you know, we need to look at how much we're spending on outreach, but that outreach workers who have trust Um, have access to placements and that those workers are able to give choice like um, Nina was saying that is incredibly important so people have some you know they you know folks just want to have some kind of control over their lives they're getting pushed around and all this kind of stuff and it's um, and we need to really make sure that the people who are quietly suffering out there um, that are alone you know all that kind of stuff that they also have access Um, and so that's um, that's a piece there and I kind of mentioned earlier, you know, my thinking on that. So I won't, I won't repeat that, but that um, those are some important pieces. And I think um, really, you know, making sure that um, quality is really important and, um, and, and diversity in our system. And so um, some people like congregate shelter, just going to say that. Um, I've met many, many, many people who prefer congregate shelter. Um, I've met elderly ladies who worry about falling down in the shower I've you know etc and so when people feel like you know there's community and blah 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 other people no way we don't want congregate shelter so and then you know there's um, people who are you know a group of people who are not blood related but consider themselves a family and so you know sometimes it's a group of four people Um, and so having that kind of flexibility in the system and choice so that people have that self-determination is really um, really important um, to ensure that folks um, you know folks are treated with dignity and respect thanks
7: okay appreciate it um I will Oops. go down so I see, see if your other hands up so I'll go in and I do I appreciate the flag around language um, I, I will mention that on several projects that I've worked on now over the last couple of years and have deeply engaged folks with lived expertise I've actually gotten the exact opposite advice that people have responded that the language of emergency shelter they find traumatizing and stigmatizing and strongly encourage us to move away from that language so i think we're in a place of not not knowing exactly what the language is that works for everybody or for majority so but i appreciate that we always have to be very conscious about how the language is being received
8: yeah temporary accommodations would work just not using the word housing yeah yep,
7: yep. okay and then i'm going to go to Ken and Julie and Chanel. So Ken, I'll
3: go to you next. Yeah, so this is on your fourth bullet on the screen there, uh, accommodating to different communities. And I think particularly of uh, the older community, older folks in shelter and of the health needs. It wouldn't be only of the older people, but particularly of older folks there. And I think making sure that health resources are full and sufficient for uh, older folks and uh, for disabled folks who are sent to shelter. And I'm uh, not directly in touch with where that stands, but I can tell you four or five years ago, there was tremendous need not met. People being released from the hospital, for example, to shelter and with very minimal health services involved and the burden then becomes on shelter workers to provide, an effect, and assisted living environment for. Uh, People who uh, possibly uh, are suffering incontinence uh, or uh, unable to shower, and you have folks uh, on medication uh, handling. Uh, and uh, just if we're, if we're going to have shelter as an option for people in that circumstance, then there has to be sufficient health care uh, attached to that. And uh, this would lead to just a second element that would be true both of shelter and of housing. And that's the issue of uh, how to deal with folks as they get older. And does it at some point, as you go from shelter or from housing, uh, you know, are we able to provide the assisted living, the health resources in that setting? And if not, are there places then that exits from housing in this case? Uh, that uh, people in uh, physical need of greater services or mental need of greater services can go on to. Great, Great. very helpful. Thank you.
6: Julie, you're up. Uh... Ah, thanks. At the risk of bringing us back into the 80s, I'm just kidding, Jenny. Um, I just got to put a plug in for like, integrated drop-in centers. Um, and I you know I heard that a little bit in Julia's comment and about the sort of distinct program program design for coordinated entry. Um, but I particularly coming off of the pandemic and where everything has been pushed to the streets, like some robust welcoming of people into a place that they can walk to themselves, that they can drop in, but isn't you know back in the days of 39 hell, or chair somewhere, but is a truly integrated and particularly highlighting health integration. Um, you know, I'm a big fan of the Mission Neighborhood Resource Center, obviously. But the reason why that was such a fabulous place for folks is it was culturally competent, and it had it was a federally qualified health center. So, and early days of coordinated entry were tested there. And so, when people would go and go through the coordinated entry process they got a no or a please wait for a coordinated entry, but then they got a shower and then they got a doctor's appointment, then they got, and you know, glides the same way. So, you know, I think we, it hasn't been du jour in the homeless, you know, nationally to, to go toward drop-in centers, but I think for people, especially with the large number of street-based folks we're seeing just like as many small, large, whatever it takes to just really welcome people and provide something real. and that could be a shower. You know that could be a locker, but it could also be a, you know, a very welcoming staff and the opportunity to go through the coordinated entry process. So I would just put that back on our, our list of wonderful interventions, even though I know they're costly and don't always end up in housing outcomes. But it, you know I think that's an area to look at for the behavioral health spending as well. Like the pharmacy is not that. I uh, just, I'm going to say that, you know, I think we're, some of the services that they're doing is that, but uh, some of the sort of more typical health-based stuff that it, that doesn't provide the wraparound care, uh, I would like to see, you know,
1: alternatives to spending on that. Thanks. Okay, great. Appreciate it. And Chanel? Uh, definitely want to agree with um, the comments on sort of the one-stop shop piece um, and just thinking about the sip hotels and just getting the reports of improvements in health outcomes because of folks being there and just having the doctor's visits and everything just right there and pretty amazing outcomes even just some folks in my own life that um, have been able to get um, you know care where they weren't able to get it before because of what was happening in that um, ecosystem so really um, appreciate those comments and then of course going to put a plug in for gender specific uh, shelters um, and shelter options, particularly for folks escaping violence, uh, whether that be domestic violence, all types of, of violence for um, cis and trans identified um, women. We just need more more options, um, more services and easy access as well for folks um, uh, in their pregnancy, if they're pregnant and and with kids in tow. Um, I've just heard horrible stories and I know we hear all the time from um, Martha Ryan and folks at um, HPP, Homeless Prenatal Program, about just the need to increase, and and just the heartbreak that comes in Jelani House as well. That comes from not being able to have those um, enough of those um, types of beds. So, I think folks really need it.
3: Great.
7: Okay, appreciate it. Okay, we're gonna move to Planning Area Five, which I'm sure y'all can have lots of thoughts on as well. So, this is around. Increasing permanent housing exits that's a little bit awkwardly written with the intention is increasing people's, the number of people who are exiting to permanent housing not exiting from permanent housing. So just making sure more people are getting access to permanent housing. And we're trying to strengthen retention and that as people exit homelessness to permanent housing, they are successful and stable in that housing. So some of the kinds of strategies and activities in this area could be around Make sure there's equitable access and outcomes within permanent housing programs, including when we look at housing stabilization and retention, um, enhancing housing first implementation. I think someone touched upon that earlier um, could be about expanding supplies of units. I don't know some folks have mentioned that already could be the mix of tenant based and scattered site options within the within the the uh, the uh, range of strategies there. Um, re- Rapid rehousing, other forms of rental subsidies, and I know people have touched upon that if people want to dive more deeply into that. And then also the, the kinds of housing ladder opportunities the, the community has been trying to provide of helping people move to another affordable option for them. Um, that when they may not need the intensity of services in their current living environment and can free that space up for someone else. So again, just the kinds of things. Um, next slide. Same questions. What should be the most important objectives here? would help drive progress towards that especially as we think about racial and housing justice in permanent housing access and retention doing more of doing less of specific needs for specific populations so i see nina you have your hand up we'll go to you first
2: so i'd love to see um, more shallow subsidies um, and maybe different types of shallow subsidies we talked yesterday about you know, uh, longevity and also uh, scale <laughs> or amount of the subsidy, um, being able to to uh, to change either of those measures depending on on the needs of the household, um, and then also, you know, better connections between different programs. So, you know, folks, we've built we're increasing our rapid rehousing. Of course, some of those folks we may learn in that period um, are going to be able to increase their income and and afford a market rate apartment that's not everyone, and that's a huge lift (laughs) in our economy. Um, So better connections to programs. So someone could go from, you know, homelessness prevention, resource, oops, you know, they fell into homelessness. Now they need rapid rehousing. Now they're going to need a shallow subsidy. Um, And I could see in the same way that Mental Health SF has metrics around, you know, connections like discharge from um, the hospital and connection to care thereafter, seeing those connections um, across programs and across supports being an area that could be measured, Um, so I think I would focus on that um as a key as a key area. Oh, I'm sorry, one other thing that I was wanted to say on that is maybe also related to that, like a a more thoughtful both meta-analysis and kind of household level analysis of likelihood of increasing income. (laughs) Like it feels like we're not actually accounting for the enormous increase in income or you know, subsidy of housing that needs to happen. Um, And so really being thoughtful about that, like looking at the economy we have in the Bay Area and also looking at the, you know, desires um, and abilities of the household to be able to have real sense of what is this family or individual gonna need over the next 10 years? And what is the realistic likelihood of getting there without, with or without support? Great, great, very helpful,
7: thank you. I see Jennifer and Julie, I'll go to Jennifer first. Maybe on mute, I can't see your camera at the moment.
8: <laughs> um uh and um I feel like I just everybody's making a lot of really brilliant points. Um and just like when you weave it together, it's just this beautiful vision for a system. So I'm really appreciating that. Um on this one, I've got a few points. Um we in terms of strengthening retention, there's a number of things that needs to happen we really need to have an easier transfer process. This isn't always the answer, but I do think like, I've just, I'm hearing from woman after woman who have um, s- pretty serious safety concerns that are like stuck in places for really long after time. I mean, that's just one example. That just happens to be what I keep hearing um, folks coming to me about and um, other issues as well. Um, the, um, the evictions are disproportionate towards both um, African-Americans and people with disabilities. And so, um, I think there needs to be, and there's there's agencies that do better at this than others that have really strong retention policies within their organization. Um, those policies need to be written into all the contracts, and there needs to be a, um, you know, an expectation of the supportive housing providers that um, they have to, you know, do certain things before they before they go through eviction proceedings. So oftentimes the eviction proceedings are used as a way to put people in line. And um, there's a lot of other stuff. It's just, it's really stressful for folks. Um, And so that's the piece. And then I think the, we need to think about beyond. So we need to have the, as just repeating what Julia said earlier around the, and Chanel said, I think that the extremely low income. So the folks that don't need support services and having some options there to the other extreme end um, of folks that, um have really high acuities that permanent supportive housing isn't necessarily set up to serve and that there's other permanent housing models within the health department that might be um that might be better um so folks with a you know um uh maybe with dementia that need a little higher level of care um folks with you know that could that, those kinds of things um uh and so i think having that um, uh, that match happen more holistically rather than just this is the first thing that's available. So we're going to, we're going to do that, but hopefully we have a, you know, we have choices for folks again. And then um, really trying to make sure that there's community building that's happening in the housing. Um, and um, so that there are, you know, tenant councils and, you know, just all these different things that we can do to build community isolation is huge especially in permanent supportive housing and really creates a lot of um you know it's a lot of problems for folks as well as kind of thinking about community building community in the way that the 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 buildings are run if you have a beautiful community space in a building that should be accessible to people all the time it shouldn't be limited we should be encouraging people to develop community and not have all these weird rules we need to look at our visitor policies we need to look at people being able to reconnect with family all of that stuff um, in our permanent supportive housing um that really with the with the framework of how to build community um, both inside the building and 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 in the broader community as well and then the last piece um the access to housing um just following up on julie's comment around drop-in um we 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 did have like an MNRC, Cap Street was wonderful. Um, Cap Street should have regularly had access to housing, and they should have been able to place. And um, and we need to make sure that we have those drop-in spaces. And those are traditionally the places where you engage folks in services that are pretty disconnected from the the um, the service system. And you're able to really um, really work with folks, and they're in a place where you can you know the housing process is so difficult. Um, get helping people get through that over time. So I think, you know, really thinking about um, having a diversity of access um, where people can do direct placements, not just through coordinated entry, but, you know, you have, you know, the recently blind, you know, et cetera, et cetera, you know, these situations and 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 they're able to do some direct placement um, because it's going to be impossible to do it any other way. That person's just going to be left out otherwise. Um, so this is... Um, Those are my comments. Sorry. I know that was a lot. Great.
7: Great. Great. Appreciate it all. Um, And I see Julie and I see
8: Ken, so I'll go to Julie
7: and then to Ken. And if anyone else wants to jump in on this topic before we move on to prevention, this would
6: be a great time to put your hand up. So Julie. Yeah, great. Um, I really appreciated the coordination with MoCD on the housing strategies. And I think there you know just a second the shallow subsidies like really looking at that and expanding that we have some great success the city's been doing it for a long time with mo so really sort of enhancing that looking at you know some of the harder but really profound models like land trusts it's very difficult in San Francisco I get it but you know I'm happy that this committee is really talking about the the sort of more nebulous things about community building and stuff but really we know that that makes outcomes improved um and i think land trusts are, are part of that so really just like focusing on that partnering deeply with MoCD, really looking at those those strategies particularly shallow subsidy um, the other thing just to second the work around exits and and retention I've always wished that we would have a coordinated exit system because once we keep, once we get people in the system, they're just falling out. But we have them and that those issues of transfers and, you know, working with case managers at the housing sites to have early signs that folks are going to need additional support. For some folks, moving around is exactly what they need. Like being in a in one housing setting over time means that they're going to strain their relationships. They're going to, you know, work toward eviction. It's, it's very clear and, and those those things can be seen early. So really like supporting people so that when the early problems or just unhappiness, lack of choice in, in, their, in their buildings, uh, they might have a, you know, a team of people helping them figure out where they can go next. And it's a lot better for the system than having them drop out and start over. So Coordinated exit has always been my dream. Thanks. Great, appreciate that. A couple more
7: hands did go up, so that's great. Um, I'm going to pause for a moment. I just want to flag for the staff. I'm I'm managing to an to 11:10 end of discussion. I just want to make sure that's still the right time frame for me to be handy handi- to. So we're we're doing great. Actually, we're making our way through all of these topics. Um, but if I need to wrap things up sooner, please do
4: let me know that. Uh, this is Jesse. Uh, I think that's great. And there's probably, you know, five-ish
7: minutes of work <clears throat> on that. Okay. Great. Okay. Thank you. So I think I promise to go to Ken next, and then I'll go to Julia and then to Chanel.
3: <clears throat> and uh, so I'd say looking at more of what we should be doing, I think, uh, within housing to focus on the food security needs of people. and that we do a lot of that right now. I think there's a lot more that we could do and so to flag that as an issue of concern, uh, as well as what I mentioned earlier, the health needs of people, making sure that there's a health provider partnered with the organizations with the housing site, and that there's a a real presence that's there with it uh, for medication management for, uh, in some cases, uh, assisted uh, support. Uh, and paying in the process of that, of course, looking at long term options for people so that if people have to leave housing, we know where they can go to. And a third thing, unrelated, and well, it's unrelated to it too, but looking at different models of housing. I think we have the supportive housing multi unit uh, model down pretty well, both in terms of the master lease housing and new construction. But I think looking at congregate living options, for example, for uh, folks who uh, want longer term congregate living, uh, folks who don't want to go into a room that closes them off, uh, well, that can be isolating uh, shared living space over and above a community room, possibly shared cooking space, something where smaller places, 10 units, six units, 25 units, where people can develop a more intense level of community and sustain their housing that way. And again, a model that might be particularly worthwhile for uh, older persons.
0: Great.
9: Yeah. Okay, cool. So I guess we'll start with um, strengthening retention. Um, I think, Nina was kind of speaking to this. Um, But I think a big issue is like, sometimes we just put people like not necessarily in the best circumstance for them, or like, what is the best case for their situation, but it's what's available, which of course makes sense. But um, that doesn't always end up being super successful. So like, how do we, you know, get around that? Or if that is something that should just be more temporary until they're like in a situation that works for them, but just them having to go back through the system doesn't really make sense um, when that situation doesn't work out. Um, I think that holds true a lot of the time for rapid rehousing. Um, I think a lot of the time too with certain programs and like rapid rehousing and stuff like that, um, we're not asking people enough what do you want to do? Like what, what do you see for your life? And instead we have these boxes that we force people to fit into. So like of course if I'm thinking I'm gonna get housing and my situation's gonna be better I'm gonna say whatever it's gonna take whatever you want to hear that you want me to do with my life but that's not necessarily what I want to do so like more autonomy and I think we've done a pretty good job of that what I think at least in the youth system more as of late um, but are we doing that enough in all the systems because like we want people to feel motivated and inspired and like that's not gonna happen if we're telling people what what like they should be doing Um, and a lot of that time that has to work that works into the workforce development where it's like because that ties so closely right with housing is like your income and I think a lot of the time we create these boxes as far as like what how people should be making their income Um, let's see yeah I think also like as far as strengthening retention um, like what what are the what does that metric look like like how long after do we track retention And um, I think some programs are better at others, at having, like, caseworkers who check in regularly, um, provide support, like, if see how things are going, like, I know there's some family programs in the past that have done that, um, and even provide, like, services, services, like still give them diapers or food, and, you know, for X amount of time after they, they got into their rapid rehousing. Um, I think another thing, and I think we've actually done better with this, like housing people in San Francisco, but if you move people away from their support systems, like they're more likely not to succeed, um, I think, Uh, especially single parent households. Um, So then, yeah, um, I think too, as far as like more exits, how, how do we leverage our inclusionary housing program better? How do we leverage our BMR program better? So as far as do I think we should be targeting 55% AMI? Probably not, but maybe it's a little too late for that. But how do we leverage those units and get people who have vouchers, any kind of voucher into those units? Um, Because a lot of the time people um, time out their vouchers and lose them. But if we can just be, create some sort of, priorities or like save certain units that are developed for vouchers specifically. Like I could just see that as being really successful. Um, and I don't think we talk about that enough. Like how do we leverage it? And I feel like that's in the interest of developers because they probably don't want those folks there. But at the end of the day, like those are technically our units, like most CD units. So like we have final say. Um. Uh, let's see. There was a great, Program um, for young moms uh, that doesn't exist anymore. It was basically a five-year subsidy that if you went, it were a student, they would give you a subsidy for five years to like while you were in school, a housing subsidy. Um, it was really successful. I know several uh, girls that I knew who went through it. Um, And I think we could expand that like for youth, even people without kids, maybe older moms as well. Um, I think we should be encouraging people to go get their education if that's what they want. At the end of the day, that's going to like really increase their income. And so just looking at more types of subsidies that are like that, that just allow people, again, to have like more autonomy over their life. Um, Let's see. Also, Okay. I think, and I don't know, like, how much control we have over this, but um, there's, like, a lot of HUD policies that have been implemented, like, in the past, I don't know, my sense of time is off, but, like, maybe six, seven years, um, around, like, how your housing can be passed down to, like, your kids or people on your lease, and a lot of people end up experiencing homelessness because when whoever the elder was in the household who like was on the lease passes away, like everybody loses their housing who was in that household. And I've seen a lot of people who were taking care of their parents like in shelter plus care, for example, now they live in the shelter. Like that just they're. they're I don't feel like that needs to happen. Um, there needs to be like a catch for for those folks and HUD has honestly made it more difficult. Um, and I feel like they just don't want housing to be continuously passed down. But I don't know. I, I don't, I think like, I don't agree with that. Um. Yeah, as far as looking at different models, I completely agree with Ken. I think there's so much still like innovation to be uncovered on like models that even just like financing models, like how do we finance more housing? Um, and I think it would be interesting to hold some sort of public like community event where we literally just like brainstorm housing models and people, like, kind of something like this. Um, And, like, it could be in different areas, like, you know, development model, but then also, like, financing models, like, stuff like that. Um, And I think in San Francisco, like, we have a huge opportunity as far as we have a lot of misused space. So, like, in SOMA, like, really, we could develop up so much more. And so I also have a lot of ideas around that and also how can the city eminent domain to increase housing as well um so let me just read my list really quick make sure that was everything um yeah that's everything thank you appreciate it very much
7: it's very comprehensive thank you And you touched upon everything from financing development to services i really appreciate all of that uh chanel and i'll go to you
1: yeah, thank you so much, Vice Chair D'Antonio, really great list. Um, I would just add just um, are the piece around high acuity folks and permanent access to housing. I mean, I don't really know what we have available. I think about Laguna Honda, but you know, for that long-term folks that really need a lot of support, a lot of case management, um, whether that be um, you know physical, mental, um, I just, you know, I feel like it's a major issue. I mean, we see it on the streets every day. Um, in the city. I mean, I do, particularly when I walk out of my door every single day. So I'm just thinking about where's a a home for folks who um, are going to need long-term care, um, that they're not going to be able to be um, in a, you know, apartment alone, and they're going to be needing that, um, a lot of support. So um, definitely an increase in that. And again, just going back to the private market discrimination piece, I think there's a lot of that with vouchers that happens as well. And, um, yeah, just how do we tackle this um, issue of landlord discrimination and really kind of come from, like, I don't know if we would need to do the carrot piece. I think now we need to use the stick because, you know, um, as Vice Chair Antonio mentioned, like, these are our units, like something like with developers paying out and providing, like, their threshold for affordable units. Like, I think there needs to be um, some into that as well. But just, um, yeah, I think the city needs to figure out a way to really enforce um, private developers, private landlords, and how they're meeting, helping us to meet this crisis, because I feel like they're not doing their part, so. Great, appreciate
9: that. Can, can I say something really quick to what Chanel was just saying? My bad. I, I think it would be interesting if we had like a pool, like a fund, where basically if you were discriminated against in the marketplace, because I feel like a lot of the time, If you had money, it's easy to just get a, like, if you have a lawyer, just sue, but obviously poor people don't have that. So if we had just, like, a pool, like a fund where if you were turned away and you felt like it was for discriminatory practices, or even if, like, like Section 8 or, like, even applying for these things, if you have, like, a housing navigator who's been working with you, like, will advocate for you to tap into that pool so you can, like, it needs to be enforced is, like exactly what Chanel was saying and the only way to do that is through the legal system so I feel like yeah just having like a pool like a fund for that specifically Great.
7: okay we'll move to planning area six which focuses on prevention uh, preventing people from experiencing homelessness you we sort of have the housing retention in the previous one because it's so closely linked to access and retention that's obviously a prevention strategy as well so here we're focused on other things that could reduce and eventually eliminate disparities and risks and entries into homelessness, maybe some of the upstream kinds of strategies of people who are connected to other systems and we need to make sure that as they participate or as they exit those systems they don't don't enter homelessness, um, reducing entries through problem solving interventions, other forms of support, homelessness prevention, eviction prevention, etc. So I'm just going to, here I'm going to ask people to just be very punchy and pithy in your comments because we want to make sure i want to make sure i don't throw your retreat off schedule so we want to get through this one in the next six or seven minutes so folks can just be as direct as you can about uh, your thoughts on uh, the next if you go to the next slide the same questions objectives activities start doing stop doing uh, tailoring for different populations or communities see a few hands up it would be great also if everyone who wants to weigh in Raises their hand now so I can make sure we get to y'all. And I didn't see the order in which they came up. So I'm gonna, Chanel, are you still up for this section or are your oh, hand? That's from discre- last
1: time. Sorry. I'll take
7: that. No, no worries. Yeah. So I see Nina's hand up newly then.
2: Hi. So two thoughts. Um, one is more surveying and just asking folks what could have prevented your homelessness so we get a better sense of um, what and, and not bucketing that, but really open ended questions. Um, so we get more information about what different types of services and supports we should be offering. Um, and then a second piece would be more mediation um, for family members, roommates, like it, you know actually having kind of that problem solving type resources, but before someone has to experience homelessness to make sure that you know a lot of times there are conflicts that arise that could have been prevented um, and then end up in really catastrophic situations. So I could also see that applying, I've seen this another in DC, they did this for reentry. So folks coming out of prison or jail would get some advanced support to mediate with family to make sure that they could return to a safe and stable home. I'll leave it there. Great.
7: Anyone else want to jump in on prevention strategies, activities, objectives?
8: Jennifer. Uh, just, Just this is an area that needs a lot more focus um we're I mean I feel like this is a very clear area that we're failing and um hopefully the investments will start turning that around but you know looking at the pit etc cetera, et cetera, like we're looking at the, the Latino task force survey that they did and so many people becoming homeless during the pandemic when there was an eviction moratorium like we're failing and um one of the things that I hear from folks a lot um is that uh, there, I think it needs to be coupled with pretty pretty clear communication campaign on this one, um, because you're you're getting at folks who aren't necessarily on the word of mouth, um, which is how most people learn about services. So if like you're exist if you're homeless and then you're around other unhouse people, there's a lot of word of mouth stuff. But if people are in housing, they don't necessarily know and so um, where where to get assistance. So I think. You know having you know and it's not that difficult nowadays with the website and not you know websites and stuff just making sure that it comes up the right information comes up first when people do a google search etc etc but we just and making sure that you know churches and you know all these other people know what what's going on there um those would be my two things yeah great appreciate that.
7: anyone else who wants to speak specifically to
8: prevention You know, just
9: really quick, to... I feel like I said some other things around prevention and other sections, like that's yeah, yeah. going to translate over to this section, right? Okay, cool. Yep, yeah, of course.
2: And yes, I did put my hand back up, which is just to, you know, I, I think this, just want to make sure this is said that we discussed yesterday, there's 9,000 households is the best estimate for folks becoming homeless each year. So taking, you know, if we really think that's the best estimate having a plan to reach those 9,000 households to the best of our ability, like making that a serious funding programmatic strategic priority. Um, and, and like believing that we can get there. <laughs> uh, I think that feels like an, the number one objective for me. And that's a huge gap from even where we are now with our OCO funding, which is estimated to reach 2,500 households a year. Like what's the strategy for getting there and how much should we pull on local resources? How much do we need to be spending a lot of time advocating for more state resources or federal resources? Like let's take real that 9,000 number and let's meet that need. Sorry, I
9: just put my hand up. Um, when I guess that made me think of something, which is just like, also looking at how many people contacted, like to help get support for eviction prevention, but dropped off and figure out why they dropped off. Because I will say like, I applied for the back rent and I went through like some of the eviction providers, um, and, uh, our prevention providers. Uh, it's not it's not low barrier. It's not, it, it, it it's stressful. It's stressful. And I would say if, if I had an eviction notice and I had to go through that, I might like, you know, I would fall off. So like, how do we support people better? And where do we see where those drop-off points were? Like, was it because we're asking for too much paperwork? Was it because, you know, I don't know, maybe they entered into a depressive state and they just, you know, because then how do we, how do we prevent that? Um, so yeah, I think there's some work to be done as far as making it more like low, low barrier and easier for folks.
7: Great. Great. Okay. Well, I think we are exactly on time. So I want to, I want to really thank you all for spending so much of your time on the retreat on this and for this incredibly rich and thoughtful conversation that was both Specific, but as I think someone said earlier, also just conveyed this sense of the vision and the values for what our system should be trying to accomplish. So I just really appreciate everyone's active participation. And um, I think
1: I will turn it back to the chairperson. Thank you, Matthew. Thank you, Thank you so much, Matthew. And I'll give you a round of applause you. for your excellent facilitation and just walking us through um, all of it. It just, just shows the depth of um, knowledge on this board and um, just feel so honored. To be part of this effort and just thank you for all of your efforts so um thank you we are gonna now wrap up and if there's any closing thoughts on um what we just walked through I know it was a lot and I think we covered <laughs> I think we hit everything I just feel like there's just so much um that was covered as Matthew mentioned too everything from financing to system barriers to just really um the whole spectrum of what we're um trying to address and with this issue. So if there's any closing thoughts or um are things or folks are thinking of in terms of priorities, Member Reggio.
0: Yeah, I
3: just wanted to say also, I think it's great to have you working with us, Matthew, but I also think our experience with Cynthia, the two first uh years on yeah. this committee, it's just terrific that Cynthia is in this driving role uh with HSH. So I'm very optimistic on this plan. I, I've seen you know, through the years, many planning efforts, too many planning efforts. This one, I have a little faith in. And uh, I think the fact that you're making it citywide, that you're outreaching to so many groups, uh, and that you have the leadership that you have uh, uh, with the two persons, you guys, but also with your colleagues, uh, I think we're in uh, a good place. Thank you
1: member Regia, I'll second all of those comments. A huge shout out to Director Najendra and all of her work. Um, yeah, we're really lucky to have her there. And I'm also very lucky to have Matthew's support as well. Um, I see uh, Data Officer Ledbetter.
6: Yeah, just want to third all
1: of that. Thank
6: you so much, Cynthia and Matthew. And just carrying forward from yesterday, the integration of the needs assessment. And Jesse, thank you for all of that amazing work. Um, I think I sort of mentioned in an email, it would be really lovely to, to kind of try to take the analytical work that was done for the needs assessment and package it in this way that I'm talking about, with the, which is popular and publicly accessible. And, you know, we, we had a super rich conversation, but that um, it was very dense for those who have gone through the whole needs assessment package. It's extremely dense and it's extremely rich. And so it's hard to pull out the insights in that format. And if we could maybe get a graphic designer to help and you know, this is our first real big analytical piece coming out of the committee. You know, I think the, the first plan that we worked on with Matthew and the investment plan was our first effort. We didn't have a lot of information at that point. So, and just in the vein of just, like, trying to come out strong with, with the amazing work that's getting done here, I'd love to look at that possibility. And in a way that that repackaging can then be really productive and helpful in moving the strategic plan forward. Um, so whatever I can do to help with that or, or have conversations about that, you know, shiny, glossy things people kind of look at, you know? And then they pass it around other communities, and you know I've done it myself. I'm like, look at this great, well formatted document from Washington D.C. Have no idea if it's ending homelessness, but it looks really good. Let me take a look at it, you know. Um, So, I think just participating in that type of communication would be awesome. And then also just want to thank thank you guys for this format. It really was a very helpful format to feel like we're providing input, talking to each other. It's been a challenge on the Zoom calls to like have that camaraderie sometimes in the sense of exchange. So I think this was really, really great. Um, And hopefully, sorry, I'm, I'm circling around, but it's all leading back to system modeling, which is my favorite. But it's lovely to sit here with you guys and sort of try as hard as I can to draw from the insights of the needs assessment, my personal experience, but it still feels sort of anecdotal. Um, And sharing my thoughts feels anecdotal, and I think the goal of the system modeling is that we can really begin to understand where our investments are making impact, where we need to course correct. And I would be super excited if that modeling can help us get there, so that we're 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 using good information like that, and we're, we're not just showing up as committee members being like, well, in my experience. <laughs> um, so I I, I just want to flag again the possibility for a follow up conversation about that system modeling, because we're now we've now said it enough that I think there's a little bit of a you know i'm not sure about how confident it's going to get us where we need to be and i'd i'd love to
1: change that that thinking and myself and on the committee if i could thank you thank you so much data, uh, data officer ledbetter i do want to say we have a few products that we're working on that are going to be coming out from our committee we have of course the letter to the mayor and to the board of soups and then also this report which i think will incorporate a lot of those pieces which the needs assessment as well as um, you know, the information that we um, discuss here today. So I'll be working closely with um, Jesse and I invite others to engage in that process. I believe Data Officer Ledbetter, I think we, we already recruited you to be part of that as well. Um, and of course, uh, Vice Chair DeAntonio um, to really package this and, and get it out. And I agree, you know, we definitely want to share out as much information um, now that we have some some good data and some things to share about process. Uh, with the community so really excited for that um, first report uh, from our committee and would even um, push to have us present at the board of supervisors and some other spaces if we can and maybe I'm speaking to Jesse right now if we can coordinate something like that Um, I think it's just a lot of hard work with with everyone Um, I think it'd be great for the board to hear from us if that's possible Jesse what are you what are your thoughts if she's there (laughs) I have no idea. We'll see. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. And I can support with that effort as well if folks are interested in that. I know we've had um, the mayoral appointees and the board appointees um, going forward, go in front of um, the board as well as the mayor prior. So maybe we can recreate that same process again and share out this important info. So any other hopes and uh, burning desires for the future before we go to public comment? see uh
2: member Catalano. yeah one thing I had mentioned this briefly to Jesse um but it could be interesting to have a community meeting about the needs assessment um I think we, it's something we could do in person also to just bring folks together who may not join a zoom call or um go to a board of supervisors meeting um so just a thing we could think about too in terms of how we get this information out in the community
1: amazing idea thank you member Catalano. Um, I don't know. I want to give you the chance, Matthew, to talk about, before we go to public comment, talk about n- next steps. I don't know if we covered that um, in terms of for this process.
7: Right. So, yeah, so we're continuing to have lots of conversations. I really appreciate all of your insights. We're, you, we're going to the Local Homeless Coordinating Board again tomorrow. We're going to the Strategic Framework Advisory Committee again tomorrow. Uh, the, the folks from Talent Pool are starting the surveying activities of people with experience. There's a there's a open kind of general public town hall being planned for early December. There's a session focused on frontline staff being planned for early December. So there's still a lot of information gathering going on, uh, but we're also starting to hear and recognize some of the themes that are coming through so far. So starting the the process of drafting materials over the next uh, several weeks. Um, we're expecting that the first part of 2023 is maybe previewing some ideas and thinking to some, some groups and getting some feedback, confirming with other departments the work that uh, they're committing to work on together and that they want reflected in the plan, um, and still aiming for kind of sometime sometime in the first quarter to have a public-facing version of the document. We are also talking later today about the system modeling and how and when and to whom to bring back further discussion of that. So I will definitely flag your continued interest in that um, when we have that discussion. So I think we'll have opportunities to continue to engage with you all in some of the next steps. Um, and then I do really just want to flame that not flame, what's the word? Uh, <laughs> emphasize. I'll go with that instead. That, um, that the vision for this plan is very much like we are setting a course And we are regularly checking in and reshaping that course and direction so that it may be a multi-year plan. It's probably going to identify the things that are going to be of earliest focus. It'll preview the things that might be focused on next. And then the department is very much committed to regularly coming back and updating and refining. So I'm hoping that this actually becomes becomes like an ongoing map for the work that's happening in the community, not just a... A plan that gets created and then we see if we, get, we got it done in a few years but it becomes more of the roadmap that's directing the action that people can see and understand what's being focused on now and what might get focused on next so i'm not sure if there's more concrete next
1: steps that i could provide but that's kind of the kind of where we are in the process that was great. Thank you, Matthew. Um, so we'll go to member Reggio. Did you have your hand?
3: Yeah, I, I do. Just a question, Matthew. Is there a, a, any formal process for acceptance of this plan? Like, is this a plan that's accepted by the department head, by the mayor, by the board? Who says this is our plan?
7: I think I'm probably not the best person to answer that question. So I'm gonna, I might have to punt on that one. I think they are still thinking through what the what the process is.
3: Maybe, um, maybe so just to raise a question, even if we don't have the answer right now, unless yes, Cynthia is there still and can. You
7: know. I think I'll Cynthia sure. had to run to something else. Um, so they're definitely already talking about it, but I, I don't have a firm Good. firm direction on exactly how they're going to proceed with that. But the expectation is that they are making sure people are understanding, endorsing, supportive of the plan, but yes. I just don't know the exact mechanisms they'll be using to make that happen.
1: Thank you. Uh, Thank you. Data Officer Ledbetter, has a hand up. or Jesse, did you want to? Just
4: on that, I can follow up with Cynthia and get an email out to everybody on that. Thank you. Data Officer Ledbetter. That would be great. And Jesse, I don't know
6: how far the thinking has gotten, but um, there will be the electeds and those stakeholders, but also like, what's the plan for broader community adoptance of this? You know. Beyond the city family, um, and do they need some community organizing partnership in that? And my guess is yes, they do. So I'm sure there's lots of people out there willing to to do that work. Um, and then Matthew, how do you see the need, the insights and work of the needs assessment carrying forward into the strategic planning process? On your iterative comment, like. It would also be nice to know if our needs assessment resonated with the people that talent pool is engaging and you know were we on track or is it valuable information so i don't know how that how you see it building uh
7: yeah so i did look closely and i actually hoped i could listen in on your conversation yesterday about it but i had a conflict conflict so i wasn't able to do that um, so i think it's incredibly rich information and, and especially the things that are more qualitative and about people's experiences and the ways people's voices and exact quotes are, are sort of in, deeply informing, I think is really powerful and something that the rest of our processes, I think we'll get some of that out of some of the surveying discussions, but it's a good augment to the more data analytic parts of the process. Um, I think the intention is to very much feature a lot of the key themes that came up through that needs assessment within the strategic plan itself. And then we'll be trying to make sure that as we're we're thinking about objectives and activities, are are what we think about resonating with what the needs assessment highlighted as priorities and concerns. And I think there's actually already a lot of close alignment there. So I think it should be easy for folks to see the connection between themes coming through the needs assessment and things that are being identified as priorities to work on in the plan.
6: And initially, are you seeing that as, I mean, we understand the needs assessment sometimes in other languages as like a gaps analysis, right? Is the, Are those, and which then begs the question of how much, how much more, and of what? Is that, is there a focus on that?
7: Uh, so I think the modeling is very much focused on understanding the what the, what the current system can deliver with the, Current resources and anticipated resources, and then trying to figure out how how much further could we go. Um, what can we forecast is going when, especially when the the people controlling the development of the plan don't necessarily control the commitment of the resources. But that's definitely where the system modeling is helping. And then the and then the modeling around in response to the place for all requirements are definitely pushing the questions about how much of which and how much would that cost.
1: Excellent. And new interventions like the shallow subsidies. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Um, we're going to go to public comment and I want to give us a five minute bio break before we switch gears uh, to our guest speakers. So Secretary Hom, do we have any public comment?
0: members of the public who wish to provide public comment on this item should call 415-655-0001 access code 2493-324-7846 then pound and then pound again if you haven't already done so please dial star 3 to line up to speak a system prompt will indicate you have raised your hand please wait until the system indicates you have been unmuted and you may begin your comments please note that you have two minutes i'm checking the attendee list now and we do not have any public comment for this agenda item
1: Thank you so much, Secretary Hammond. Again, huge thank you uh, to you, Matthew, and to Cynthia, and to everyone um, for all their hard work and and moving this forward. And we'll, of course, be in a lot of communication as we uh, move forward in the process. So now, um, colleagues, if we just want to take a five-minute bio break, stretch break, grab water, um, we're going to come back, let's say, 11.31 um, for our guest speaker, which is really exciting. So I'll see you all in five minutes.
10: TV San Francisco Government Television
1: Thank you.
0: Cunningham Denning. Absent Vice Chair D'Antonio? Here. Member bot Present. Officer Ledbetter. Officer Ledbetter. I see her in the queue, but I was just I I her. At this point we'll call her absent. Uh, Member Miller? Absent,
1: Member Reggio? Here. Chair Williams. Here. So I believe we still have quorum, or do well, you want to circle back? We, we do still. You do have
4: still... quorum, yes. Okay.
1: All righty. So I'm really excited to introduce um, Anne Oliva. Um, Anne is a career veteran of the homelessness and housing policy. Um, she comes to the Alliance from the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, where she most recently served as vice president for housing policy. Her distinguished career is also marked by a decade of experience working for the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, HUD, where she served as Deputy Assistant Secretary for Special Needs. So welcome, Anne, uh, to OCO. Really happy to have you.
10: Thank you so much. It's lovely to be here. I've heard about this group before. I'm um, from my colleague, Cynthia Najendra, and from uh, my other colleague, Matthew Doherty. So uh, I'm excited to be with you today and to have and have a discussion. I think is this the end of your time together? Um, okay, great. Well, uh, I was asked to sort of give some some broad information about what's happening nationwide to help inform what you are thinking about in terms of making decisions about uh, resource allocation in your area. And I have some slides, but I would really like for this to be a conversation. And. Um, so you should stop me as I as I go through the presentation. It's not very formal. Uh, just to ask questions and maybe stop and have a, a little bit of conversation about what uh, what I'm presenting, but also sort of, you know, you have me for a half an hour or so for as, as long as you as as you want to have me on your agenda today. And I do, um, you know, as was reflected in my introduction, I've been doing this for a long time. I dare say, even though it like pains me a little bit to say it, I dare say I've been doing this work for close to 30 years. Um, I started in this work right after I um, graduated from undergraduate. I was a VISTA volunteer in Albuquerque, New Mexico, uh, which is how I got into work on housing and homelessness. And and for a period of time, I lived with... Um, the, the people who we were serving in my program in the same building. And I got to know and sort of fall in love with the, the women and the kids um, and the others who we were serving in our program. So it's been this lifelong uh, sort of life's work for me. And I've served in a number of different capacities, including inside of the federal government, don't, Discount me because I was at HUD. I have good insights. I know that HUD can be a pain, but I have uh, some good insights to offer there. Um, but also in the in the nonprofit sector, which is where I've spent the the balance of my career outside of federal service. So um, so with that, I look forward to just diving in. Does anybody have anything they want to like ask or talk about before I before I dive in? No, we're good. Okay. All right, so I don't use this platform very often, so I'm going to do my best to figure out how to share my screen. There we go, and let's see. Uh,
4: Looks great. Does it? Yeah, we can see just the slide
10: large. Okay, very good. Okay, so um, I'm gonna focus in on two things today. I'm gonna talk. Well, first, I'm gonna talk a little bit about, a little bit about the alliance and uh, and who we are, in case y'all don't know who we are. But I'm gonna I'm gonna first focus on some data that I think is important. Uh, When I was making decisions at the local level in DC or, or in other communities that I've worked in over the course of my career, these are the kinds of things that I was looking at uh, in order to, to make sure that I understood um, the context. So we're going to look at some national data. um, And then I have uh, from, from one of my team members, I have some, some California specific data that's, you know, sort of a little different than, than what the national picture is showing. And then I'm going to talk a bit about. Um, uh, I spent the month of October, a little bit longer than the month of October, out in the field, doing listening sessions in uh, a number of parts of the country. I'll be coming to California next, actually, but I'm going to give you some reflections about what I've heard so far and see if they resonate for you in your in your uh, region and and state. And again, stop me as we as we go forward. Uh, if you have any questions so I am the new ish CEO of the National Alliance to End Homelessness. Uh, if you all have worked with this organization before, you've probably worked with uh, Nan Roman, who I am I am her successor in this role. she was in this role for almost thirty years and I took uh, I took the helm in June of this past year. Uh, you might also have have worked with Jerry Jones, who is our field director um, or or Steve Berg or others. Steve is our vice president for policy. But the National Alliance to End Homelessness is a nonprofit, nonpartisan national organization whose uh, mission is quite simple. It is to prevent and end homelessness in the United States, period. So we do that work in a variety of different ways, but our mission, again, is quite simple. And that is the direction that the board of directors has given me your job is to figure out how to end homelessness um, in the United States. And so we do that primarily through three uh, very large areas of focus um, and then I'm going to talk about a fourth that's emerging that I think is really important for you all to consider as you think about your own regional resources. And the first is our you know our operating division on policy and programs. So we, educate policymakers both at the national level and at the state level. We work with the administration, whatever administration is in power at the time to make sure that they understand the data, what the evidence tells us works uh, towards ending homelessness. And then we also lead a lot of national advocacy, both at the grassroots level and at sort of the grass tops level, again, with members of Congress and members of the administration. So a big example of that work recently has been around Build Back Better, uh, which you know, passed the house in, um, with a housing package that was quite robust. It did not make it through the Senate for a variety of reasons that most of us already know, uh, but we were pretty proud of the work that we did both to um, educate members of Congress, specifically on the house side, to uh, ensure that they understand what really needed to be in that package in order to uh, reduce the number of people who are experiencing homelessness in our country and also mobilize the field to put pressure on their own members of Congress and state legislatures to, uh, to enact that critical legislation. So that's an example of how our policy and program team works. Uh, we also have two areas of focus where we have senior three areas of focus where we have senior policy uh, fellows working. We have a uh, specific work on older adults that we've been doing who are experiencing homelessness. Uh, specific area of of concentration on uh, families and um, and then also we have a senior fellow whose sole job is really to work in California. He is located in Los Angeles and uh, really works with a variety of, di- of your different state level um, uh, elected officials. So that's policy and programs. Second is capacity building. We actually work in community alongside continuums of care and other providers to help them implement evidence-based approaches and really do problem solving alongside them in community. Um, and that helps communities implement things that are working, but it also helps us learn what the challenges are so that we can try and solve them, um, through our policy work. And then we also run the Homelessness Research Institute, which uh, publishes all sorts of data and research and evidence uh, around what's working to end homelessness. We use an equity lens to identify disparities uh, within our homeless services systems. And uh, again, publish those findings so that everybody can use them in their own local work. So that's who we are. Um, and next, I really just want to start digging into the data a little bit, uh, what we're seeing nationally. So we have not gotten the results of the 2022 point-in-time count yet, except for veterans. That data was just released uh, earlier this month by the Department of Housing and Urban Development, and um, and so you know we're looking at really this table is really about 2020 data. I, I have my suspicions about what the 2022 data is going to look like, um, but, but here's what we know. Even before the pandemic, uh, we saw a rise in the number of um, people living unsheltered and the number of people experiencing chronic homelessness. My very strong and, and I think well-informed uh, suspicions are that we are going to nationwide, we are going to see an increase in the number of people who are unsheltered in the 2022 point in time point in time count, and the number of people who are experiencing chronic homelessness, in part because people were left out outdoors for, two, for the two years uh, during the pandemic when things were really shut down, and that has had a pretty significant impact on people experiencing homelessness, specifically unsheltered homelessness. In 2020. Uh, 20, We had two firsts that I would sort of encourage you all to look at when you're looking at your regional data, Um, because these two firsts nationwide, I think, tell um, a really alarming story. The first is that for the first time since, since we started gathering this type of data, Uh, we saw an increase in the number of people and families with kids living unsheltered. And I'll say that again because I think it's important for folks to to think about that. An increase in the number of people and families with kids living on our streets um, and in other unsheltered locations like cars for the first time. Also for the first time, and you can see it in this chart, uh, the, the second bar... Uh, where it says individuals, you can see the pie chart underneath of it shows um, the other first, which is the number of individuals nationwide living unsheltered exceeded the number of individuals living sheltered for the first time. That had always been true for people experiencing chronic homelessness, which you can see in the fourth bar there, but had never been true for individuals sort of more broadly. When we take a look at your data in California, um, I know that the full point in time count for 2022 for the entire state of California hasn't been made public yet, but based on our reading of the data that has been made public so far, um, what we're seeing is a growing proportion of California's homeless population was sheltered in 2022, which is a good, it's a good trajectory to have even though the bulk of people experiencing homelessness in California remain unsheltered. something around, Somewhere around 65 to 67% of people in California experiencing homelessness remain unsheltered, but the, tra- the trajectory is going in the right way. More people are uh, sheltered than the year before. So w- this is what we know about folks who are um, experiencing homelessness sort of by subpopulation and whether they're sheltered or unsheltered. And then I think you all know as well as I do that historically marginalized people, including people of color, uh, people living with disabilities, LGBTQ people and others sort of bear the brunt of homelessness and housing instability. And you can see in these charts that, um, uh, black people and other people of color are overrepresented in the number of people in the population of people who are experiencing homelessness. In 2022 in California, I'm sure that you have all seen, and I'm not sure what your local or regional data says, but one of the things that we picked up quite quickly from your state-level data is that Latino homelessness seems to have risen quite sharply across the state. Um, So even in COCs that reported an overall decline, like San Francisco, for example, Um, with its about 5% decline in overall homelessness in the side of the state of California, San Francisco reported a 5% decline. But even those COCs that reported declines in 2022 still saw increases in the number of Latinos experiencing homelessness. So taking that San Francisco um, uh, example one step further, they saw a 5% decline in overall homelessness, but still saw a 55% increase IN LATINO HOMELESSNESS. SO WE DON'T QUITE KNOW WHAT THAT MEANS AND WHERE THAT'S COMING FROM. THERE ARE A NUMBER OF, of FOLKS WHO ARE uh, DOING some, SOME ANALYSIS AROUND THAT DATA TO TRY AND FIND OUT WHAT'S HAPPENING. I THINK um, DR. Cinchilla, uh IN YOUR STATE HAS BEEN DOING SOME WORK IN THIS AREA. AND SO WE'RE LOOKING FORWARD TO PARTNERING WITH HER AND WITH OTHERS TO UNDERSTAND EXACTLY WHAT'S GOING ON. So that's the data that I thought was really important for you all to have as context from the national perspective. Um, And now I'm going to turn to uh, what we're hearing from people experiencing homelessness uh, in in a variety of different ways. So uh, like I mentioned over the the month of October, a little bit longer than that, uh, we have been in the field uh, doing listening sessions with three groups of folks. First people experiencing homelessness currently, or who have recently experienced homelessness frontline staff, because frontline staff very often have a very different perspective of the system and where the system is doing well and not doing well than, um, than leaders do. And then we also are talking to uh, organizational uh, system and elected leaders. About what's happening uh, across the country on, in terms of homelessness and homeless systems, and primarily these are the themes that are emerging so far from people who are either currently experiencing homelessness or who have recently experienced homelessness. And it's no uh, surprise to any of you that what we are hearing is that folks want adequate, affordable housing options and supports, and um, and that. Uh, PEOPLE EXPERIENCING HOMELESSNESS REALLY uh, have, HAVE FOCUSED ON THAT, that HOUSING, when it, ONCE IT IS AVAILABLE, IT NEEDS TO BE TARGETED TO THOSE FOLKS WHO HAVE BEEN MOST IMPACTED BY STRUCTURAL INEQUITIES. Uh, IF YOU THINK ABOUT LIKE the, THE DATA THAT I SHOWED JUST A COUPLE OF MINUTES AGO AROUND um, HISTORICALLY MARGINALIZED GROUPS uh, EXPERIENCING HOMELESSNESS IN A DISPROPORTIONATE WAY then you can see that the people who are experiencing homelessness are telling us that same information, but from a different vantage point. So as we think about the implementation of any sort of affordable housing options and supports, um, really targeting them to people who are most impacted by structural inequities. This second one, again, uh, really serv- really focuses in on services and how services uh, should be dignity-based trauma-informed person-centered. Those are all the, the kinds of words that we heard from people experiencing homelessness and that they can be should be co-created and led by communities, again, who are most impacted by homelessness and really figuring out how to bridge the, the perceived or actual divide between uh, homelessness and housing systems and supportive services that people want and need uh, because there seems to be a disconnect there. We heard a lot from people um, about congregate emergency shelter options being uh, inadequate, but also just sort of causing harm, not just in the pandemic in the context of a public health crisis, but also in more normal circumstances and really encouraging us to think about alternatives to congregate emergency shelter as options. Uh, things like non-congregate shelter, like the projects that have been done in California, uh, Room Key and later Home Key. And then again, another piece that came through loud and clear from people who are experiencing or recently experienced homelessness is really the, the increase in criminalization of people who are experiencing homelessness for the mere fact of existing is something that they raised as uh, traumatic it is traumatic for the people who are on the receiving end of those uh, practices and really thinking about how police should or should not be involved um, in the homeless services system, not as um, not talking about when when there's illegal activity, but like as outreach workers and really. through. And then uh, from our frontline workers and from other leaders in the homeless services sector, we've heard a number of things. The first uh, sort of big issue that came across was that the funding that was provided during the uh, pandemic, that is the American Rescue Plan and the CARES Act funding was both incredibly challenging to implement, but also highly beneficial and highly beneficial for a number of reasons. First is it came with a one volume that we had not seen before in our sector. I was at HUD when we implemented um, the 2009 Recovery Act and the homelessness prevention funding was $1.5 billion, which at the time we thought was just the hugest amount of money we would ever see at one time In our field. Um, And the investments made here were obviously um, much, much bigger than that in in terms of scale. So, you know, the the beneficial part of this money was not just the scale of it, but also that it allowed for certain types of flexibilities that were incredibly helpful uh, at the program level. So, um, for example, the emergency housing voucher program allowed for landlord engagement and certain kinds of incentives um, and uh, housing navigation in a way that the regular housing choice voucher program and even the hud bash program does not allow for. So those kinds of flexibilities folks found very helpful and would like to see replicated uh, in the permanent programs. And then also because there were a number of flexibilities provided that communities used these to fund innovation and new approaches that can be hopefully uh, evaluated and replicated across the country. Again, other other things we heard new opportunities for funding like the the most recent HUD unsheltered NOFO um, have certainly been appreciated, although we heard again very loud and clear that the timing of uh, the NOFO on unsheltered and rural homelessness AGAINST THE REGULAR COC PROGRAM WAS REALLY TOUGH FOR FOLKS, um, AND PEOPLE WERE PRETTY ANGRY ABOUT IT. ACROSS THE the BOARD, WE'RE HEARING ABOUT STAFFING ISSUES, BURNOUT, um, PAY ISSUES FOR for PEOPLE EXPERIENCING, OR FOR FRONTLINE STAFF THAT ARE REALLY CAUSING um, uh, VERY DIFFICULT STAFFING ISSUES AND STAFFING SHORTAGES ACROSS THE COUNTRY IN OUR SYSTEMS. SKYROCKETING RENTS, Implement uh, impacting both the inflow. So increasing inflow into our systems and also adversely impacting the ability of our systems to exit people from homelessness. Um, And then you can see these other things, more services, uh, deeply affordable housing stock is needed. And again, criminalization is is the big issue here. So I'm gonna, um, I'm just gonna go one more and just give you a a sense. These are, this is a word cloud from the notes that we've taken at all of the listening sessions so far. Um, And what you can see, and I think what's most striking is that the word people is the biggest and it's in the center. And that means that a lot of folks in our systems are worried about people who are experiencing homelessness but not just them. They're worried about the frontline staff, how to keep uh, frontline staff, how to value their their, uh, work in our systems um, so that people who are experiencing homelessness can be served in the best ways uh, possible. So I think with that, I will stop sharing, although maybe I don't know how to do, there we go bring you all back and see if you have questions or thoughts, or is there anything else that I can offer that would be helpful for you as you consider your work going forward?
1: Yes, I actually, um, Anne, I just want to see in in your perspective, um, and thank you so much for providing this national perspective. It really aligns with a lot of what we're seeing in San Francisco and and California. Um, Like, what are some bright spots for you um, as we, you know, our committee has the hard work of sort of making recommendations and prioritizing. Um, with this, you know, we have some decreases in revenue um, for our particular fund, and so would really love to hear what is inspiring for you and what um, bright spots you're seeing from the national um, perspective that could give us some encouragement and some some hope as we move forward to the next year. Yeah,
10: um, you know, I've also been on this like sort of speaking tour, and I always end with this particular. Uh, set of thoughts. And that is, um, despite the challenges, I absolutely have hope. And I have hope because I've seen people collaborate in ways that we have not seen in our field. Uh, I certainly have not seen in my in my career. Um, We're starting to see innovation. And I'll tell you a little bit about, um, you know, a program that we went and saw in uh, the Twin Cities in Minnesota that had taken the flexibility that was provided to them through the COVID funding. And they stood up basically um, a non-congregate shelter that's almost, it's almost like uh, tiny homes, but within a giant warehouse. And that model uh, is really dedicated to people who are, you um, are living unsheltered and who have uh addiction and what they the way that they have staffed it it just it was so compelling because it was the language that they use the compassion that they have the way that their staff are trained um really in service to not saving lives and not just saving lives that night but providing a, an environment where folks don't feel ashamed or afraid of the fact that they um, have a fentanyl addiction, for example, um, where the use of Narcan is, is um, sort of socialized within that environment, and that getting into treatment and is a priority. And so what we saw there is, you know, 67 people were saved via Narcan, and over a hundred people were moved into both treatment and um, and a permanent housing as a result of those innovations that they put in place over the course of the pandemic. Um, I think that folks are doing communication in a different way and thinking about communication in a different way to sort of combat some of these criminalization efforts that I find very compelling and helpful. So I would encourage you all to think about how you um, wrap the need for proactive communication um, into some of the resource decisions that you're that you're making. And then the last thing that I would that I would say is people really do need some flexibility, and um, to to address some of these very quickly shifting needs on the street. And I can't say that I went anywhere where flexibility was. Um, abused or not used to the, there's always, you know, a, the balance on accountability, but I saw, I have seen flexibility being used in really important and um, and helpful ways that I would encourage you to, to think about as you're, again, doing some resource allocations.
1: Thank you, I see Vice Chair De Antonio and then member Reggio. Thank
9: you, yeah. <clears throat> Thank you so much for that presentation. Um, you kind of touched on one of the things I was going to ask, which was the innovative practices that you had mentioned on um, the slide or about the listening sessions if I don't know if um, after maybe you could send us like a list of some of the most innovative ones so we could just read up on it. Um, I know at least I would love that. Um, sure. And then my other thought is around or question kind of is around, um, you know, police not being appropriate outreach workers and like there's, you know, police as like the noun, but like policing as like a verb, um, like is policing an appropriate like thing for outreach workers to be doing, like policing an environment, whether or not they are police. And so I'm wondering if there's any, there was any thoughts around like what, what on a more positive note, like what are the appropriate outreach workers to go out? Like what should people be doing? Yeah,
10: yeah. You know, um, we've definitely heard from, from folks who are either pairing uh, police if they're not willing to move into a, an environment where police are not being used as outreach workers, but pairing uh, mental health providers alongside police uh, and, and other types of, um, of outreach workers to sort of work alongside police so that it doesn't become policing. Uh, or, to to use your terminology, Um, we also saw a, we've seen some really interesting and innovative practices around outreach sort of writ large, and sort of, and generally moving police to what I personally think is a more appropriate response, which is when there is something illegal happening, or there is some sort of um, uh, need for that type of armed response. THAT THAT'S WHAT POLICE ARE USED FOR AND OTHERWISE WHEN LIKE THE 311 SYSTEM OR THE OUTREACH HOTLINE uh, REACHES GETS A CALL THEY ARE SENDING TRAINED MENTAL HEALTH OR SUBSTANCE USE uh, COUNSELORS OUT TO DO TO DO OUTREACH RATHER THAN THE FIRST RESPONSE BEING A POLICE OFFICER WITH AN ARMED RESPONSE. The other thing that I've seen that's really interesting that some folks in um, King County, I believe it was in King County are doing, is um, uh, really employing people with lived experience and expertise of homelessness as those community ambassadors, especially when they're doing encampment resolution or, um, or cleanups. So that the front line of response is people who have experienced homelessness themselves and can really create connection with, um, with folks who are living in encampments, so long as it is not a dangerous situation. I unfortunately think that um, in a lot of places, uh, the, the use of drugs or other illegal activities gets conflated with homelessness in a way that's deeply unhelpful. And being able to sort of parse that out and and to, to send a response that makes sense for the actual problem uh, is something where the, the communities that I think are, are doing well in moving the needle and closing encampments in um, positive ways. That's what they're what they're doing. They're really using peer navigation. They're using um, people with lived expertise to help design those programs that's the other thing that I meant to mention that gives me hope all the time is the number of people with lived experience and expertise who are coming to my listening sessions and telling us about being included for the first time in meaningful ways not just a check the box kind of way in uh, planning and decision making and I have found that really um, inspiring.
9: thank you yeah me too.
1: Okay. Thank you so much. I see a member Friedenbach.
9: You're muted. You're
8: muted, Jenny. Just registering. Um, I don't, I don't think it's appropriate for outreach workers to go out with police. It's like the quickest way to disintegrate trust that. And so I just, from our experience, that's a really bad model. Uh, Just wanted to make that statement. Um, we've definitely yeah. had that tried many times in San Francisco, including under our matrix program, et cetera, et cetera, and it really, um, you know, it 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 really is not a great recipe for trust.
10: Yeah, I would um I would agree, and let me just uh, sort of make sure I'm clear about the statement that I was making. Um, what I've seen is a couple of communities who relied solely on police to be their first line of outreach moving towards uh, a more um, professionalized outreach approach or a peer outreach approach. Um, again I don't that wouldn't be our best practice for sure and but seeing some movement there I think I think in most cases was positive although I think you're telling me that it's not in any case positive. Uh, but the other thing that I would, note on that is, we have come across in a couple of places, um, when when uh, outreach providers are in a situation that becomes really dangerous due to drug activity that isn't, it's not really homelessness related, but those things get conflated. Um, What we've seen are some, I think, promising practices around when an outreach provider can or should call in law enforcement and what and helping them identify those lines. So that's what I was saying. I agree with you um, uh, more broadly on on all of that. I don't think police should ever be outreach
1: providers personally. Thank you so much for that clarification. Um, um I'm going to go to uh, member Reggio and then we're going to have to take public comment. I think we've almost lost quorum. Um, I know we're at time. So, uh, member Reggio.
3: Yeah, just a, a quick one on a big issue. Are there any communities in that you look to particularly as having, uh, in a particularly, uh, good way at race, address the racial equity issues involved in homelessness? So, I'm thinking particularly in regard to housing issues.
10: Yeah. So I think what we've seen, to be completely honest, is more um, challenges than than great uh, examples so far. And yes. I'll I'll call it sort of the the equity cliff for lack of a better term. Um, a lot of communities when we ask them uh, Have they looked at their data and disaggregated it? Have they um, started to partner with people with lived experience of homelessness? They say yes to those things, but are unclear how to move forward beyond them, in part because uh, there is, it is very, in some communities, like for example, in San Diego, they were exploring um, how they could use race to uh, address the the, um, disproportionate number of people who are experiencing homelessness and try to to balance out the number of people um, who are getting housing vouchers, for example. But because of fair housing uh, requirements, they actually couldn't use race. So they're looking for proxies. So what I've seen work the best is an analysis of your data and figuring out which proxies uh, might work and could be included in the process to um to identify people who are for example getting housing vouchers or getting into permanent supportive housing and using those elements uh as part of your uh, intake process
3: and have you seen any communities that have done done that success or are doing that successfully or on so- the approach to it
10: I could send you some referrals to other communities. I'm only hesitating uh, because some of those practices are so new. Yes. We don't know what the outcome is yet. And it might, I don't want to send you down a path that's, that's unhelpful, but I could certainly send to you uh, some referrals to other communities who are thinking these things through in real time.
3: I I think that's important because that's one, I think from a values perspective, we've got it down in this community. I think from an implementation perspective, you know it's severe housing issues that are potential or more than potentially are the the challenge. So maybe if you could get something to Chanel or to Jessica, that would be terrific.
10: I also I also understand that maybe you all have um, engaged with Regina Cannon from a, does that name ring a bell for for you all?
4: Yes, I think the Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing is working with Regina on um, coordinated entry redesign and some things like that. Yeah,
10: so I would lean on her. She is an expert in this area. She is the person that I call when I need to talk through some of these issues. Um, And if you already have her engaged in your community, you have a great resource
1: right there. Thank you thank you so much um and for all of your um everything you've shared and i just really would love if you have additional resources if you could send those uh, oh, to yeah. just before we can share with the board um at this time i really wish we could continue the conversation but we are at time and so i'm going to ask secretary Hahn to go to public comment
0: members of the public who wish to provide public comment on this item should call 415-655-0001 access code 2493 three two four seven eight four six then pound and then pound again if you haven't already done so please dial star three to line up to speak a system prompt will indicate you have raised your hand please wait until the system indicates you have been unmuted and you may begin your comments please note that you have two minutes i'm checking the attendee lists now for any hand raised for public comments and i do not see any i believe julie is i'm going to unmute her she's in the attendee list so that we can take um roll call
1: Yes, we're going to go to, um, and thank you again, um, and we will be definitely in touch and we're actually going to take a motion to adjourn at this time. Very good. Bye, everybody. Thank you so
8: much.
1: Thank you. Thank you. I move to adjourn. Okay, so moved by Member Friedenbach. Is there a second? Second. Seconded by Member Reggio. Um, Do I take public comment? Uh, No, but I
0: can go ahead and take roll. Take roll. Um, Yeah. Uh, Member Catalano? Absent member Cunningham Denning, absent Vice Chair DeAntonio. Yeah. Member Frieda Watt. Yes. Officer Ledbetter. Yes. Member Miller, absent member
1: Reggio. Yes. Chair Williams. Yes. So just thank you so much, everyone, for an awesome retreat. We, myself and Jesse will be following up with a number of items. So I hope everyone has a wonderful rest of your day and a great weekend. So we'll be in touch soon. Awesome. Thank, thank you so much. Thank you. Bye.